Please welcome Head of Investor Relations, Jimmy Sexton. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us here uh, at Snowflake Summit in Las Vegas. And for those tuning in, uh, thank you for joining the live stream. I've heard it's been a nightmare getting here from New York. Um, so uh, I hope all of you had a, a chance to attend and or listen into the uh, kickoff keynote last night with uh, Frank and, and Jensen from NVIDIA. I think it laid out you know, our roadmap and partnership with NVIDIA very um, cleanly. And, and you know, we're going to dive uh, a little bit into that today. Uh, it is also now uh, available for a replay on, on our website. So uh, if you didn't get to see it last night, please uh, you know, give, give it a listen. Uh, we also had uh, an incredible uh, main stage keynote this morning. Um, I think you know, we're going to double click on a lot of the product announcements that we made, uh, but that is also available. Um, outside of today, we also have a week full of uh, jam-packed customer sessions that we encourage all of you to attend. Uh, we can tell you one thing, uh, but I think hearing it from our customers uh, is you know, more important. Uh, so before I dive into the agenda, I want to acknowledge our, our safe harbor. Um, and so here is our, uh, our, our lineup for today. Uh, so first, you know, you're going to hear Frank Slootman, our chairman and chief executive officer, talk about you know, really our North Star in mobilizing the world's data. You've heard us talk about this dating back to 2020 uh, during the roadshow, and I think today it is even more relevant with everything you're hearing around the different generative AI use cases. Uh, next, we're really excited to show a pre-recorded video uh, with Frank and, and Sachin Adela. Uh, from Microsoft talking about you know, the next phase of our partnership uh, coming off the heels of that press release you saw um, yesterday. Next, we're going to invite Christian Kleinerman, our Senior Vice President of Product, to talk about kind of our pillars of innovation and kind of uh, how you know, generative AI um, plays into this, uh, as I realize that's you know, top of mind. Uh, then Christian's going to invite uh, Sridhar Rama. Ramaswamy uh, up from Neva. That is the deal that we announced last month, uh, the co-founder of that company, and talking about how um, this next phase of Snowflake uh, and Neva can, can work well together and how you engage you know, with that data. Uh, next, we're going to have Chris Degnan, our chief revenue officer, come up with Rob Smedley, the vice president of data and technology from Disney Parks. They're going to talk about kind of the foundation that Disney is building uh, on Snowflake and um, you know, kind of the roadmap uh, you know, for them. Uh, in the future. And then lastly, we're going to have Mike Scarpelli uh, come on stage, talk about you know, our long-term opportunity, uh, how we get to our long-term model, and hopefully uh, answer uh, questions with some new uh, metrics and disclosures um, to, to help you better understand our comfort around that model. Uh, and lastly, uh, Mike's going to invite Frank and Christian up for audience Q&A. And at that time, we will have uh, Mike runners, so um, you'll be able to answer you know, your question on the broadcast. So with that, I will invite Frank Sluman, our uh, Chairman and Chief Executive Officer. Hello, everybody. How are we doing? I mean, my most important thing today is to tell you that I'm still here. Uh, and uh, I just stepped up on the podium. I wasn't stepping down, so I just wanted to make sure you heard that loud and clear. Uh, it's always amazing how these things... Uh, seemed to air uh, on the first day of our conference, you know, when our board member, Mark McLaughlin, and myself and the company sort of emphatically uh, denied the rumors. That's the world we live in. Um, you know, I, I, I hope you had an opportunity to hear our session with Jensen uh, last night, which I think was super cool. Um, you know, the partnership is really meaningful, um, you know, to us. And obviously, uh, this morning, um, if that didn't convince you, you know, we have absolutely a ton going on. 
um, in the world of AI. You can take a shot now if you'd like because there's a drinking game going on. Um, then, you know, not much will. But if you need more conviction, we're here today. Um, and I also recommend that you sort of wander around to the partner pavilion because you can see large language models, you know, running in snowflake containers all over the place. And you'll see a bunch of our partners, uh, you know, literally running, uh, you know, large language models on Snowflake already. So sort of the train has left the station, and, uh, you know, we're running really, really hard to uh, fill in behind that. I think Christian's session this morning is, uh, this afternoon, is really important because he's going to really lay out the whole framework, all the different ways that we are going to enable these, uh, these language models. This is really important because, you know, we cannot really predict, you know, how customers are, uh, are going to do this. You know, those loosely coupled, tightly coupled. Uh, we see a lot of people, uh, you know, using Microsoft's hosting uh, of OpenAI, Azure to Azure type of models. So that's sort of in the, in the Microsoft world is one model. Um, and then there's other models that are, are being attempted at the same time. So it's very early going. The great thing is you know, we just have this, this wonderful architecture, and, you know, a lot of the things that we just delivered um, are really intersecting, you know, with all the possible options and configurations that people are going to want to entertain. It's not quite as simple as uh, Jensen said last night, and we just go uh, put this AI factory on top of your data, and poof, you know, you just get pelted with insights and intelligence. I like his vision, by the way. I just absolutely love it. But, you know, it's going to take a little bit of work to uh, make that all go. Um, so Jimmy just said, you know, when we went public, which is now almost three years ago, it feels like dog years to me, um, but, you know, our tagline at the time was mobilizing the world's data. And that is as, as relevant or more relevant today uh, than it even was then. And, you know, when you see this this, this avalanche of uh, of, of um, AI interest, you know, coming at us. It's like this is exactly, you know, what we wanted to do, what we're trying to do, and we're just getting a huge help, um, you know, from the world of technology to do things that were just unimaginable uh, not too long ago. Um, as most of you know, I've been around a while, and I told the story about, you know, learning COBOL, uh, several decades ago, and people then, you know, referred to COBOL as a common business-oriented language, which is like, you've got to be kidding me, because it was just, you know, not very business-oriented, and it certainly was, uh, you know, very hard to learn even in those days. But compared to assembler and machine code, you know, it was readable syntax, and, and it was a step up. And in the 80s, and I was, I was certainly very much alive in the, in the 80s, the, the, the movement towards, uh, towards structured data, structured query language, I mean, that was a huge step up. But people then said, hey, you know, this lay people, relatively, uh, you know, unsophisticated people can now query these relational databases. Well, obviously, SQL became much more complicated over time. Um, the fact that we're now seeing that we're going the last mile, where we're completely obliterating these, these, uh, uh, these limitations that we've lived with since the, since the early days of computing is just incredible, you know, to me. And you don't even need to be literate these days because you can just talk to a database and, and, and come back with uh, very meaningful feedback uh, and insight. So data, um, you'll, uh, you'll hear about that a lot, is the foundation of AI, and we're sitting on a ton of it. And we're sitting on proprietary data. We're sitting on, on, on public data, uh, every combination thereof, every different data type, from structured to semi-structured, to unstructured, you heard about it this morning. 
So this is just a great place to be. Now we're just racing to enable you know, every possible configuration um, you know, to, to derive these benefits. So good time to be alive. Um, we said over and over again that if you want to have an AI strategy, you need to have a data strategy. If you saw Mahir, the CTO, I had a bigger title than that, but I always call him the CTO at Fidelity, uh, talk this morning, I think that was, that was actually very important. You know, I don't know whether everybody picked up on that, but Fidelity has a textbook uh, strategy and implementation, uh, not just of Snowflake, but in general, how you run data strategy in large institutions, large uh, enterprises. I mean, it's, it's incredibly uh, curated. It is incredibly consolidated. It's trusted. It's sanctioned. And they have full control. We, we, and it, I cannot begin to tell you that these guys are just primed, you know, for AI. And they know it, right? That's why this is so important. You cannot just take, you know, a data lake, which might sometimes are referred to data lakes as landfills, because it's just, you know, full of files. If you think you're going to just, you know, stick a model on top of there and flip the switch and everything will be okay, I think you'll have another thing coming. So it's very, very important, you know, to get your data strategy in order, in order to position yourself, you know, for a lot of the benefits that we're envisioning that we're going to get from, from AI. And machine learning is, is well underway. Um, that's a whole, you know, a whole separate chapter that we're actually fully, fully engaged in. I said, uh, you know, this morning, I mean, we have, you know, 70% of our large consuming customers, which are customers that consume more than a million dollars a year, you know, they are using Snowflake for machine learning, and I see it and hear it, you know, all the time that people are running dozens and dozens of models now. Years ago, um, in the early days of Snowflake, when I was there, I mean, it was still a rarity. We were mostly doing 24-hour cycle, you know, big batch analytical processes. I mean, you know, this, this kind of data science is really becoming, becoming mainstream. So the data strategy part, this is why we talk about it so much. It's such a key enabler to, uh, to AI strategy but it's an enabler to everything. Um, a lot of the conversations I have with customers, I mean, there's, there's just immense frustration with people not trusting data. And uh, this is sort of one of the, the key benefits that data warehousing brought to the world, right? I mean, we kind of poo-poo it now because data warehousing was incredibly capacity constrained. We always had the running joke, you know, it was sort of begging for 2.30 a.m. time slots, you know, three months from now. It was just impossible to get anything done. Um, but what they did bring is this, this sense of curation and trust and, and, and sanctioned data. Now, I will tell you that, you know, there's one large financial institution, a customer, um, they have a very large data lake, which is not Snowflake, and, but they have Snowflake as well. And they have trouble getting people to use their data lake. They're all going to Snowflake. Why? It's trusted. It's sanctioned, right? Understood. The data lake is like anybody's guess. And that's really, really important. You know, we go forward to these higher levels of, uh, of, of function. We, we have to have a data strategy that is working. So I think the, the Fidelity presentation this morning was like a, posters, a poster child for, for how to do that. So we're sitting on a ton of data. Data has gravitational pull. Um, it's, com it's coming. This is an avalanche that's coming towards us. You know, in the beginning, you know, people are going to be looking for, you know, simple stuff. You know, I, I call it augmented query. You know, I just want to be able to ask some natural language questions. I don't know whether you saw the Forbes article in, uh, about State Street. 
Um, you know, they have, they have added to their dashboards questions like, why is my portfolio down today? And it just, you know, gives you a nice, intelligent, you know, textual answer to that question. That's low-hanging fruit. You know, everybody's going to do that, right? We're just, we've, we've just changed, you know, our query method from, from whatever uh, method we had before to natural language. And, you know, it's great to go to your board and directors, show that stuff, show that you're part of the in-crowd and you got it down and all this kind of stuff. But we don't, that's, that's just far and far from the end game that people have in mind. You know, when we talk to, to the large enterprises out there, I mean, they're talking about collapsing their call centers. They're, they're talking about collapsing their sales infrastructure. They're looking for massive redefinitions of the economics of their businesses, pricing optimizations in retail, right? So they're looking for real, by the way, a lot of it is cost and economics, you know, oriented, you know, and it's, uh, this is, this is the, the demands that are going to come at our data because if you heard Jensen last night, the data holds the key. It holds the key to the intelligence, right? We just need, you know, AI, the large language models, to be able to extract, you know, what is in that data. That is really the key thing that we have to do. But it starts with having the data. In the chat I had with Satya Nadella last week, um, we talked a lot about this, and they, they are keenly aware that, uh, you know, data is where the whole game starts. So we have a healthy flow of data. You know, we're doing over 3 billion queries today. Those are, those are Google-esque, you know, type of volumes, and those numbers are, uh, are, are growing, you know, robustly. Um, you know, our footprint in the global 2000 is expanding quarter to quarter, and, you know, we are campaigning all over the world hard to continue to invest um, because we think that is the game, is to really establish ourselves once we establish ourselves, you know, we grow. You can see that from our net revenue retention rates. So that's really the, the two selling motions that we have. One is the acquisition of new accounts. The other one is growing in the ones uh, that we have. So that will continue unabated. And that sort of opens up the future opportunity to AI in addition to the current one that we have. So one thing that, uh, that, that we talk about when we talk about the data cloud is like, the fundamental philosophy, the, the fundamental conviction that underlies it is, is when you have a data cloud, you bring the work to the data. And historically, I mean, we, we, we lose our conviction very easily because we are, we have for, since the beginning of computing, it's been so easy, you know, through FTP and, and APIs. Why, why don't we just send the data over here, over there? And it's very difficult to maintain that conviction. So our whole data cloud strategy, right, that's sort of the big sell to the world. It's like, hey, you know, uh, all the work that we're doing in terms of workload enablement is aimed at that. That is full alignment with our business model, right? So that's why we're investing so many resources in, you know, not just being able to do data warehousing, but expanding, you know, through iceberg open table formats. It really opens up the data lake opportunity. Uh, transaction processing, you know, global search, cybersecurity, all the different categories of workload is incredibly important to this, uh, this strategy succeeding. We have historically never had data platforms that were so multi-capable as Snowflake already is and, and what it is to uh, become. And it's working. You know, you see the workloads growing and growing and growing in, in leaps and bounds, and that's what we have to see because that means that the strategy is, uh, is working. So the other part is, you know, because we come from an on-premise world, you know, we have always kind of looked at, well, the enterprise perimeter is sort of, you know, our playground. That's our scope. 
that's sort of, you know, what we live with. And anything outside of our enterprise perimeter, it's really difficult and scary and untrusted and all these kinds of things. Um, having data connections outside of your enterprise perimeter was like almost impossible to, uh, to get that done. We've really redefined, you know, databases and database ecosystems. You know, I refer to them as orbits um, and, and really data universes. And they're really defined by your business models. They're defined by your business relationships. They're defined by your, by your ecosystems. And they're dynamic. You know, you will grow, you know, connections. You will terminate connections. You know, it'll be different from a day-to-day uh, standpoint in terms of what you have, but also, you know, how much data is flowing this direction, that direction, both directions, all this kind of stuff. So there's much more fluidity to data. Now, for AI, this is really, really important because you want to train. You're not just going to train on your enterprise data. You're going to train on relevant data, right? I mean, the hardest thing that I, in my conversation with, with Jensen, I've had several chats with him over the last couple of weeks, is like, look, you know, we're going to come up against harder and harder questions that people want to ask of their proprietary data. And it's like how we enable that, that's really what the partnership, you know, is about. Because we can't possibly know. We're super optimistic and everybody's high-fiving and all this kind of stuff. But the reality of software, the way we've lived it, you know, over the last 30 years, is things are always harder than what, they, what, what, what we think they will be. And they take longer and all these kinds of things, like building a house. Um, so... Having, you know, a lot of the right resources that we know, you know, we're going to have very demanding requirements to be able to ask hard questions. You know, last night I, I brought up the, uh, the example that I've seen in the business of DoorDash and Instacart and so on. You know, people that spent enormous marketing resources to drive their top line, and then they have churn, which is kind of, you know, churn is sort of this thing that, that says it's like inflation. It just, it just evaporates, you know, the value. I onboard a customer. They place an order and then they don't come back, or they don't come. They come back a month later and then they're gone for three months, and it drives them insane because their models are not working. The marketing investments are not making sense. It's like, how do I grow my business if I can't get to a model? And not understanding why churn happens um, is 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 just maddening. And you know, being on the board of Instacart myself, uh, I hear about it every quarter, and uh, it's one of those things like, where does data you know begin to start you know answering that question? And we know that it can, right? So you're getting to the hardest questions that people have in their business in the world of auto insurance. And we have a lot of auto insurance customers, you know, between Geico and Progressive, Liberty Mutual, and so on. I mean, they live on telemetry data, right? Because auto insurance, I mean, they're driving their costs down. They're driving their prices down. But it's all about pricing risk. Well, the way they, they price risk is by understanding, you know, what, what the claims, you know, risks and the claims profiles are for people's uh, driving histories. And they don't even, they barely need any other data than that kind of data to be able to run their businesses. So some of these insurance companies are doing really well competitively, driving their prices down, and yet their profitability is going up. That's all data, right? So you cannot even conceive of running these businesses anymore without having that kind of data and the analytics and intelligence to be able to extract the value uh, from it. So we see this happening all over the place. You know, data used to be an assist to running business. Now it is really the core of running businesses. And as we get more and more sophisticated with things like large language models, it will be inconceivable. I mean, we will be running everything through these models. That's really where we're headed. 
So I'm going to switch gears on you because we're going to talk a lot more AI, so opportunities for taking another shot here the rest of the afternoon. Um, we, uh, as you know, we signed a contract with uh, Microsoft, and yesterday we, uh, we went public, um, you know, with that. Um, I think Mark, we, we more or less doubled the size of the contract that we previously had, which was done two and a half years ago. So there's good philosophy in that uh, relationship. Um, the conversation I have with, uh, with the CEO of Microsoft is like, hey, you're about half the size uh, in the snowflake business that you should be, you know, based on your market share. And I know why it is. And the reason is, you know, we don't have incentive alignments in the field. It doesn't matter what you think or what I think. Um, what matters is who gets paid on what, right? That, that, that directs and drives behavior. And you fully agree with that. And I said, we, A, we have to change it, number one, and B, we have to codify that in the agreement. Otherwise, this won't change, right? And we will not sign up for, for big numbers, you know, unless we have really strong assurances that we're going to get alignment uh, in the field. That's really how our Amazon relationship has become so productive because the behaviors and the dynamics in the field really dictate how these things work. And it has very little to do, you know, whether the CEOs like each other uh, or not. Um, so they've been very forthcoming on a number of fronts. Maybe Mike will talk about it you know, later, more, more, more details if, if he wants. Um, but I also asked Satya, I hey, you know, I want to I record a clip because I get asked about the Microsoft relationship all the time, and they hear me talk about it, but I want them to hear you talk about it, okay? And he, you know, to his credit, he readily, you know, agreed to that. So we recorded that clip, so we're going to play that for you now, and I'll, I'll let it speak for itself. Satya, it's great to be with you today, having the opportunity to talk about our partnership. Um, you know, we, uh, we've been working together for quite a number of years, but uh, this, is a, this is a new chapter, and uh, we thought it was a good time to uh, create a little bit of context and clarity for all our uh, respective uh, stakeholders. I'll, I'll quickly rattle off of what we think are sort of the major dimensions, and then you can sort of weigh in with, with your unique perspective in terms of what it means to Microsoft, what it means to you, what it means to our, our shared customers. Um, you know, we've been running, you know, on Azure for years now. We share thousands of customers already. Uh, Azure is really a big part, um, you know, of our world. But this is a, a dramatically extended relationship. I mean, we did our last contract just a few years ago, and now we're back and, uh, and, and we're doubling uh, up the ante here. So the velocity is, uh, is tremendous. So it's, uh, it's very exciting. Azure has also been the fastest growing part for Snowflake. Um, and as a share of our business, and I, I think you agree with that, we just have room up. And uh, we're really looking at what does it take to do that. The second aspect is, you know, greater field alignment. And uh, this is really an important part to partnership. You and I can, uh, you know, have great alignment, but uh, that you get 14 layers down, it's a whole different thing. <laughs> so I'm very excited about the progress we're making in that regard. And then finally, I think this is, this is really great, working on joint, joint solutions, the ability to co-sell joint solutions, um, especially in the areas of data science, you know, Power BI, obviously with Snowflake, uh, machine learning uh, and AI, Azure ML, Azure AI. So we're, we're really excited about, you know, how the relationship is, uh, is coming together, certainly from the Snowflake perspective. And I think our, uh, our audiences are, are, are going to be super uh, interested in hearing and, you know, your perspective as well. So go ahead. 
Absolutely, Frank. First of all, it's such, you know, it's so great to be able to sort of, you know, launch this next phase of our partnership. As you said, we've been working together, but I do think that this is, you know, one of those points where you are already such a mainstream part of uh, the core enterprise. And so, therefore, Microsoft and Snowflake coming together to address what are pressing needs of our mutual customers so that they can do more uh, is fantastic to see. And I think you captured it well, right? I mean, it starts with... Uh, really both the Azure platform and the Snowflake platform coming together because they're two mission-critical things for any enterprise. Uh, and so the more we can work uh, across all over the world, across all the different types of configurations for mission-critical applications, and so we are excited about uh, the next leg of work that we will do in bringing the best of Snowflake, the best of Microsoft Azure and at the infrastructure layer. But then, as you said, at the end of the day, it's about field alignment so that we, you know, your sort of front line and our front line can go in uh, in an aligned fashion to solve some of these critical problems that customers have and critical challenges customers have, having the shared incentives. Uh, so we're really looking forward again in this next phase to really take out some of the friction and more align ourselves at the, at the face of the customer. I think that's fantastic. But perhaps the third dimension is what's most exciting, right? Because in some sense, what's the value add? What's the sort of the sort of the real uh, coming together of Snowflake and Microsoft represent? I think you said it well. Snowflake is where a lot of the most critical data of an enterprise is, and data is the most critical asset, even in this new age of AI. In fact, AI doesn't happen without sort of data, and so therefore, Azure AI and some of the Open AI models coming together with the data in Snowflake, I think that's a place where there's so much demand. And so I'm very excited about what we can do for our customers. Power BI on the other side, right, as an experience layer on top of this data. We already have, I think, significant amount of Power BI usage on top of Snowflake. Us taking the next step on that would be exciting. Or even our purview and some of the data governance uh, capability beautifully integrated into Snowflake. Uh, or even some of our ETL, like you know our data factory. So these are all things, I think, in a very customer-centric way. What excites me about this next phase is you know, every customer in a time like this is looking for what's that edge they can get on top of their digital investment. Uh, and I think Microsoft and Snowflake coming together to help customers get more out of what they're doing with their infrastructure, with their data, with their AI, is something that the two of us can, I think, uniquely contribute to. And I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, thanks Thanks for saying that. Uh, we think the, the AI angle uh, has sort of put additional context on the, on the relationship. You know, and as we talked, this is not the same thing as scheduling your next trip to Yellowstone. This is about asking really hard questions, you know, of your own business and how do we, you know, collectively and, uh, enable that. So uh, I think these are exciting times and, uh, you know, thank you for, for the support, but also thank you for your leadership in the world of AI because the whole world is, uh, is, is moving forward and uh, this is a great time to, uh, to be expanding our partnership. No, I look forward to it as well, Frank, and I think as you, you said it well, which is in some sense we now have a new reasoning engine with the data engine when you bring those two things together, you can really fuel the next generation of productivity for every business process and every enterprise. And so really looking forward uh, to this next expanded phase of our partnership. Terrific. Thanks for taking time today. Thank you so much, Frank.
Frank and virtually, thank you, Satya. Uh, I hope all of you are picking up on this theme that really Snowflake is at the intersection of this revolution within AI and hearing Frank speak with uh, probably two of the most important people uh, in the midst of this revolution, uh, we believe is really powerful. Uh, and so to uh, lean into more about what Snowflake is doing uh, with our product, I would like to invite up Christian Kleinerman, our SVP of, uh, of product. Hi, everyone. Good to see some familiar faces. I'm sure I have not met all of you. Uh, hopefully, many of you were able to see Frank and Jensen last night. Hopefully, many of you got to see the keynote this morning. I will recap a subset of the announcement from this morning and contextualize it on why it matters for you as investors. Um, but very important to say, I am not covering everything we covered this morning, and this morning we didn't cover everything we have at the conference. So the innovation runs broad and deep, and this is a great opportunity for all of those of you that are here in person to talk to our customers, talk to our partners, and hopefully you can sense the excitement that we have at Snowflake, but most important that the ecosystem around us has. With that, the talk this morning framed our innovations in three different themes. One is the concept about a single platform, and we will not get tired of emphasizing that Snowflake is Snowflake is Snowflake, a single product. Once an enterprise integrates with their security system, their identity system, their overall enterprise infrastructure, all of the additional capability we build fits right in there. And that's a big part of the value prop that we have. We're also simplifying the cognitive load. We like asking uh, our customers, can you even tell us how many services your favorite cloud provider launched last week, last week or last year? Now think about if you want to embrace a multi-cloud world, it is really, really difficult to just keep up with the number of products and the complexity that com comes from the cloud providers, whereas we're very focused on taking a lot of the effort, complexity on our side, and simplifying, 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 so that it is easier to adopt something. So single platform we'll talk more about. Chapter number two, or theme number two, was around how do we help our partners and customers both distribute, deploy, monetize data products. It could be a data set, it could be an app. We'll talk about it. And a lot of what you heard Frank talk about, a lot of what you've heard us talk about for the last two, three years, is how do we do away with a, a, a trade-off and dilemma that exists in most organizations today, which is I want to do more with data, but I also want to be able to govern it and secure it. And go and ask CIOs, are you at odds? Do you have tension with your data science team? And invariably, there is some tension. Sometimes it gets resolved towards data scientists can do less. Sometimes it gets resolved towards we are taking some risk on security, and our whole value prop of bringing computation to the data is there should be no trade-offs. Go get amazing value out of the data, but don't give up on security or privacy or the type of analytics you can do. So let's dive into these three themes in a little bit more detail. The first one, I already alluded, for us very important, it's a single platform, and you wouldn't believe it, like it's 12 years, 13 almost, since Snowflake came out to the market. 
and our architecture continues to be a massive differentiator relative to most of the solutions out there. Our architecture has three tiers, core storage, as much compute as you want, a global services or cloud services layer that coordinates all of this. And there's a fourth element of our architecture, which is what enables us to provide cross-region and cross-cloud experiences for our customers. I've mentioned it in prior conversations with some of you. A lot of people can easily say, oh, I am cross-region and cross-cloud because they took some VM or some container and made it run. But we are truly cross-cloud where we can give our customers and partners an experience that transcends any one region, any one cloud. Some of the stats you see here, Frank alluded, the, the number of queries we're running on, on a daily basis is, is, is quite large at this point, 3.1 billion queries. We included the number of rows that one of the largest customer table that we found, a single table with 50 plus trillion rows. And we took our five largest customers by data volume and compressed, compressed, they have 177 petabytes in Snowflake. I cannot emphasize compressed enough because our compression ratio could be 5x all the way to, say, 20x. So this could be five customers have more than an exabyte of data inside of Snowflake. Going to the specific announcements that we shared this morning. I'm going to keep it a high level without going into the details, but the way I think all of you are going to see at the largest organizations have the data platform wars, for, for lack of a better name, play out is what are the engines that control the rights and the governance of what data? All of you understand assets under management really, really well, better than I do. Think of the concept of data under management or bytes under management. That's how we will see at least for the largest organizations where there is a concept of open file formats, open table formats that anyone can query, but who is the custodian of that data? And the announcement this morning is the introduction of a single unified iceberg table type, which will let customers choose, do you want Snowflake to just be a read agent of the data, or do you want Snowflake to be the custodian of, the age of that data? The words that we use here are unmanaged and managed, and the most important thing, the reason why we shifted our plans from a year ago a little bit is to make sure that there are no trade-offs on performance. We will give customers that choose to use open file formats and open table formats performance comparable to what they see with Snowflake internal tables. We announced, it was October last year, someone should fact check me, uh, the acquisition of Applica. And at the time, Gen AIs and LLMs were not this singular topic that we discuss all day long. But we had already seen a glimpse of the value that this type of technology can bring to certain problem spaces. And in particular, we said, this is pretty amazing. You can ask a natural language question of a document and be able to get answers. Those answers become structured data, which then you can use for applications or pipelines or maybe even store in a traditional table. What we have announced this morning is something that has been in preview for, for a few weeks, so we have some uh, positive customer feedback already. But it's the ability to have 
documents that are stored in Snowflake, you can use this document AI technology and ask questions in natural language and extract values for those questions. Very important. It's not a language model. It's an image and text model. And if, if you haven't seen the, 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 the demo from this morning, there was image uh, handwriting recognition involved where if a document has some parts of it that are text and parts of our image, and the image can be run through um, OCR, optical character recognition, we will be able to extract those values out of that. Think of the use cases of legal department that wants to ask questions on how many contracts have this type of terms or limitation of liability above some number. Those are the use cases, and we're quite excited about where this is at, which is in private preview. <clears throat> One of the early debates that we had at Snowflake when we were saying we want to do more on AI and ML was, are we catering to people that know ML, data scientists that understand which algorithm I'm going to use and which function and training and loss functions, or do we tr uh, cater to analysts? And over the last couple of years, our answer has been very simple. We're going to appeal to both because both are personas that are really keen and really close to the value prop of Snowflake. What we announced this morning, and these are functions that are now in public preview, are ML, machine learning, powered functions, but targeted to analysts. So if a SQL analyst wants to run a forecast on, say, sales data or any time series, they can do so without having to know the underlying machine learning technology. We announced forecasting, we announced anomaly detection, and the third one is a personal favorite of mine. We call it Contribution Explorer, which what it does, is it helps you answer what are the conditions that may have contributed to a metric changing. Typical example, um, maybe my sales, same store sales, quarter over quarter are down. Why is it? And then this can run through a number of dimensions and say, maybe it's this product line or maybe it's this specific uh, location, something like that. Important for us, this is all a, a, a driver of consumption. It's SQL functions. They can be called from within SQL, from within Snowpark, but they drive quite a bit of uh, uh, CPU consumption. Unistore, it was covered in, in, in Frank's section of the keynote this morning. I'll be the first one to say, relative to what we shared with you last year, it has taken <clears throat> a little bit longer. I think I said, this is the holy grail and this is really hard. And yeah, it is still the holy grail and it's still really hard. But the progress is amazing. <clears throat> you see here some of the logos of companies that are leveraging or using the preview of Unistore. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> And the most interesting thing is we have five customers send us a note and said, we are putting this thing in production. We know that, <coughs> sorry, we know that you're not condoning it. We know that you have production rules. We know that this is covered by preview terms. Doesn't matter. They liked it enough that they've gone live in this. So we continue making progress. The next milestone here is for us to be in public preview, likely towards the end of the year. In reality, all of these milestone transitions are a function of customer feedback and where the technology is, but it's making really, really strong progress, and 
we have people waiting in line to, to leverage it. Category or chapter number two or innovation theme number two is how to distribute, monetize, and deploy uh, data products. We frame that a lot as applications, which is where the heavy lifting happens, but everything here is applicable to data products. The other interesting thing about data products is many of our data providers have started to do, here's a data product with a streamlit UI. And I don't know anymore if you call that a data set or you call it an application, which is why in our mind it's all one and the same. One of the announcements that I, I think are most meaningful to the adoption of our Snowflake marketplace or products in the Snowflake marketplace is the ability for our customers to purchase products from the marketplace by drawing down from the commitment that they've made to us. If any of you are, if any of you are thinking, oh yeah, this is what you do with the cloud provider marketplaces, yes, same concept. But the beauty of this is that this is now a cross-cloud ability to draw down. So if a customer commits to us, say, $100,000, they could draw down for some compute on Azure, maybe some compute on, on, on uh, AWS, maybe an application is going to run a different a deployment. So we think that we're going to dramatically lower the friction that it takes to be able to leverage the amazing data products that are in our marketplace. This was announced today as generally available in the U.S. with some exclusions that you see in the footnote there. The largest announcement we made last year was the native app framework, which is the mechanism by which we bring rich applications to run close to the data. And the whole reason why we did this is to accelerate the time to value to all parties involved. Particularly, if there's someone building an app, today they spend 80% of their go-to-market cycles going through legal, procurement, and security reviews. And that same cycle is experienced in the consumer. I like an app. I like some machine learning technology. I want to use it. And yet I'm spending a lot of time just making sure that that vendor can conform with my security, privacy, and compliance needs. The Snowflake native app framework just turns that on its head, brings the computation to the data, and as long as an application can vouch for it, the data is not getting copied out, hopefully that whole cycle of going to market gets accelerated dramatically. Probably the single biggest uh, announcement today is that the uh, native app framework is, go is, as of this week, now in public preview, and we showcased 25-plus providers, 40-plus applications, already published in the marketplace, and I will emphasize for all of you, the philosophy that we have on allowing someone to publish in the marketplace is it has to be finished, real products. Uh, we don't want demos. We don't want like a toy app. No. The analogy uh, we've used internally and, and happy to, to share here is we want to be the YouTube of data products. We want to be the Netflix of data products and not the YouTube of data products. And, and uh, I, I have... Lots of respect and appreciation for YouTube, but we want that every product in our marketplace is curated. It's known to work well. We run security reviews. We run assessment. We validate sample queries because we want that maximum uh, uh, experience for our customers. Here's some of the logos that, uh, that I mentioned we, we shared this morning. Uh, I don't know if there's anyone I want to 
call out DTCC. What, what they're doing with us is, is completely amazing. The Depository Trust Corporation, they're trying to, to bring settlement data faster into the financial system. And we have seen already customers come to Snowflake and say, I am interested in Snowflake because of such an app. And that's the beauty of what we're trying to do is not just bring value to our existing customers, but create the data cloud where other customers will feel compelled to come and join. Uh, Bloomberg is another uh, recent addition that, that I'm very excited about. They are now through a native app enabling the ability to bring data to a Snowflake account. Third innovation team theme, again, is how do you get or how do our customers get value out of the data without trading off security, compliance, or capability? And very important for us. Every so often we hear, well, but Snowflake doesn't do streaming. Like, Snowflake has been doing streaming since a little bit over Summit five years ago. A little bit over. That's when, when we introduced Snowpipe and ta streams and tasks. So streaming has been in the product for a long time. What we've been working on is how do you lower the latency of that streaming? So where we used to do one minute to ingest data, now with Snowpipe streaming, our customers can bring data into Snowflake in, in a matter of single-digit seconds. One, two, all the way up to five seconds. The other thing that is very important to bring lower latency and make it simpler is how do you transform data in Snowflake? I mentioned, again, five years ago here at Summit, we, we announced streams and tasks as the way to do it. And what we've announced now, this is in public preview at the conference, is the ability to do dynamic tables, which is a much simpler way to express data transformations, and Snowflake does the execution of all of that behind the scenes. Streamlit, the external framework, the open source framework, that thing is very healthy. Uh, the growth is, is amazing. The number of applications being created is great. It has always been the fastest way to productionize machine learning models. And of course, in the age of LLMs and Gen AI, it has become a tool of choice to productize and showcase AI and ML of generative nature. We, we shared at the keynote this morning that we counted over 6,000 streamlit apps that are front-ending front large language model and generative AI uh, use cases. The big thesis by which we acquired Streamlit, it was not just to have the open source framework, which we love and continue to invest in, is to be able to securely run Streamlit inside the security boundary of Snowflake. That's what we've internally called Streamlit in Snowflake. It's been in private preview with a larger number of customers. We've counted over 2,000 applications being used, and this will be going to public preview in the next few uh, weeks, maybe a month or two at most. It's in the final stages. We're finishing up some performance and, 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 and fit and finish. But what we're hearing is uh, quite exciting from our early adopters. Then a lot of what you have heard from us around bringing the computation to the data, the technology or the collection of technologies that enable that is what we call Snowpark. As a quick recap or reminder, Snowpark is the secure hosting of Python and Java runtimes with a number of libraries. 
that make it easier to program to those runtimes. The most popular library we have right now is the Data Frame API. It went generally available in November 7th last year. And that is when you've heard Frank, myself, and others speak about, dear customers, do you want to save money from what you're doing with Spark? Is because we see the performance of our Data Frame Snowpark API be easily two to three to four times faster than Spark. And then depending on which distribution and which pricing you're, you're comparing, maybe you are only 10% cheaper all the way to 2% to 2x cheaper. And there is an extreme case. Like there's one customer that ran a POC, they ended up being 12x cheaper than what they were running uh, currently. And we're now in the process of planning the migration. So this is probably one of the fastest, actually I'll say it, the second fastest adopted technology we put out there, the first one was SQL-based store procedures, and we are continue to invest in, in Snowpark because we like a lot of what we see. Part of that investment, we announced uh, this morning two new libraries, in addition to the data frame uh, library that I mentioned, that are in public preview as of the conference. One is around doing a feature engineering, so how do you prepare the data to feed it into AI, ML, Gen AI, LLM? The other one is how do you do training in Snowflake? Um, Frank alluded to me here from Fidelity being on stage this morning. They were one of the early adopters of this technology and they completely loved it. They ended up asking us for early permission to go into production even though the technology is not generally available. We also announced this morning the introduction of a Snowpark model registry. Because one of the challenges organizations have is everyone is training models, and what do you do with these models? How do you organize them? How do you version them? How, how do you deploy them? How do you discover them? And that's the capability that we're doing. Right now, this is in, in, in early private preview, but again, early customer feedback tells us we're on a great trajectory. And probably the, the single uh, most consequential announcement, not only for our customers, for our partners, but I would say for all of you, is the introduction of Snowpark Container Center Services, which is the continuation of, we wanted to have more computation running closer to the data. But if we had done one programming language runtime at a time, we'll keep doing Snowpark for C-sharp and Snowpark for C++ for the next, I don't know, five, ten years. And we decided to just accelerate all of that. What we're doing is Snowpark for a Docker container. So now either our customers or our partners can bring a Docker container and run within the security context of Snowflake. That's the foundation of what you heard Frank and Jensen talk about. How are we going to bring this amazing framework that, that NVIDIA has? They had it all containerized and... As Frank just mentioned, you can go to the partner pavilion and you see very interesting technology running inside of Snowflake. Here are some of the logos of partners and, and a couple of customers that have already done the work to integrate with Snowpark container services. I'll emphasize, this is not people that said, oh, I would love to do something, and if you put my logo in the slide, I'll do someday, do, someday we'll do something. No, no. They've done work. We've seen solutions from every one of these partners running on Snowpark Container Services. And if I say there's another 30 or 40 in progress, maybe that's uh, undercounting it, the excitement from 
both partners and customers for this technology is, I would call it, through the roof. Snowpark container service is very important. It's in private preview, so it'll take some time to get us into the full cycle public preview on GA, but the early uh, signals we get are, are encouraging. This is how all of this comes together, and I think many of you walked into this room with questions on, okay, what are you guys doing on Gen AI, or are you getting outcompeted or anything like that? And the, the answer is the whole thesis that we've been on for the longest time is entirely applicable to generative AI. All along what we said is we want to tear down silos from customers, and we want to avoid resiloing. And one of the biggest reasons why people resilo is because they're sending data to all sorts of third-party systems. It's only that now you have even more Gen AI third-party systems you can send. And what we want to do is turn it on its head. You already did a lot of work as a customer on organizing your data, governing your data, setting policies, setting users, role-based access control. We want to honor and leverage all of that, but still be able to get value of Gen AI. We, we've shown at the keynote not only our own first-party models, but also third-party mo third models. Nothing precludes any of our customers to taking a hugging face model or from whoever you want, and they can go and run it safely and securely close to the data. Most important is not just running scoring, but be able to fine-tune the models with enterprise data. We showed it a, a couple of times this morning on how you can take a base model and improve the results of those models by leveraging fine-tuning with the enterprise data. And of course, we have the ability to call into third-party APIs. If someone wants to call into OpenAI or Azure OpenAI, we've had extensibility for a long time. We've improved the choices on extensibility. So the message for all of you is customers want to be able to do Gen AI on enterprise data securely, safely, with compliance, and that's exactly the platform that we showed this morning. It's not, not, this is not a, hey, someday this slide will be, no, we were showing many of the building blocks, and I'll be the first one also to say, we have more work to do, but the vision is clear, the down payment from the technology is in the hands of our customers and partners, and we are very excited about what can be done, and Streamly obviously plays a very important role. We announced partnerships with, have we mentioned that we're partnering with NVIDIA? Um, the, the partnership runs deep. To be very clear, uh, we're hosting their Rapids library, and we showed this morning ML training running, I think it was four or five times faster than running on CPUs. We're leveraging their enterprise AI technology to run inside a Snowpark container service. And probably the, the single biggest aspect of the partnership, they have this Nemo generative AI framework which has both models, but a lot of software that helps you train and fine tune large language models. And all of that is getting pushed through a container service to run in through in, uh, inside Snowflake. This is what Frank was alluding to. It's literally up and running here in the conference. Uh, if you, any of you want to go and geek out. Two other partnerships, RECA, we're, we're quite excited about the partnership with them. It's a small startup building a foundation model, but so far they've been very aligned with the use cases that we want to enable, and uh, we always uh, like companies that are aligned with our, our use cases. 
AI21 uh, labs, also a partner that's going to be bringing their models into Snowflake. And of course, we're having conversations with others to continue expanding these LLM partnerships. I'll, start, I'll end today where we started last year, for those of you that um, joined us last time. And the most important thing is we've started this three massive, I'd say ginormous waves of innovation. We, we decided this year to do not only 24, 2014, plus, because the plus means it's not that we're done with analytics. That disruption is starting. Many of your organizations, of you in the room here, you know that you still have 80, 90% of data on-prem and still trying to break down silos. So that disruption continues. At the same time, the disruption and collaboration continues. This is where data sharing and function sharing and application sharing is a part of it. And you're going to be able to have native application and container services. All of that is part of it. And of course, app development. How do we bring all of the interesting use cases, whether it's cybersecurity or supply chain or uh, marketing analytics, we want to be able to, to deliver a different platform where data is not copied over and over and over and siloed and resiloed all the time because we know that it just simplifies the time to value of all of these use cases by vertical and by horizontal. So we're extremely excited about all three waves of innovation. They're all making progress. And hopefully at the conference you'll get validation of the progress we're making on all of these. That's what I had in terms of a quick recap of the announcement from this morning. Now what we want to do is, I, I think Jimmy already introduced that we have uh, Sridhar from, from Neva uh, here with us. Uh, if we can get some couple of chairs, comfy chairs for Sridhar and I to, to sit down. Um, I'll give a, a chance to Sridhar to introduce himself, but I'll tell you in, in many of the contexts that, that I run, Sridhar is well known. I, I don't think anyone ever uses his last name. It's like Sridhar is Sridhar. Like, if you say Sridhar, you know who it is. And, and we're incredibly excited to, to have Sridhar here. And maybe what, what we do is we start with that background. I said, some of us know very well who you are, but I don't think everyone knows, so we can start with your background. Uh, yeah, so I uh, joined Google early uh, as an engineer, in fact, and uh, grew with the team. I ran ads and commerce at Google for over uh, five years, and uh, it, was, uh, it was quite the ride for any company. I think Google revenue grew from $1.6 billion in 2003 when I first joined to over $100 billion in 2018 when, uh, um, when, I, when I left. Um, and incredible wave of technology changes were pioneered by the teams in search and ads that uh, I ran. Uh, many of the planet scale machine learning systems um, were built as early as 04, 05. Um, about four years ago, I left Google and I started Neva with a mission to uh, humbly uh, rethink search. Uh, little did uh, Vivek, my co-founder and I uh, know that uh, revolution in AI was uh, up and coming. Uh, but a lot of being a startup is about taking opportunity when you see it. And so early last year, we could see that uh, generative AI was going to have a profound influence on how we consume information, how we talk to machines, how we talk to programs. And so we retold our uh, entire search stack, which we had built with a 50-person team, 
uh, to release the first AI-powered uh, search engine early this year. Um, of course, uh, Satya famously threw down the gauntlet uh, early this year for search, uh, and it became clear that uh, Google and Bing were going to be putting in billions of dollars uh, into, into consumer search. Uh, and so Vivek and I came to the conclusion that we really would be better off taking uh, a lot of the skills in, in data processing um, in uh, large language models done inexpensively. You know, we were a, we were a well-funded startup, but we could still only spend $10 million a year, not a billion a year. Um, and then when we looked around to who could be a great partner for us to take the journey forward, uh, Snowflake was head and shoulders above everybody else that uh, uh, we talked to. We talked to a lot of folks. Um, but we had amazing conversations with Benoit, Thierry, Christian, and Greg, and of course with, uh, um, with Frank. Uh, and here we are. We are four weeks in. Yes. And very excited for uh, uh, what has been done, but much more importantly, what is, uh, what, what is possible. Uh, you know, for me, AI, the, the non-hype part of AI uh, is really about fluid language interaction between humans and computers. I think it is really hard for us to understand how much of a profound influence that's going to have on all of the software that we're going to be using. Um, but uh, it very much feels like a right place, right time. Yeah. So, so you, were, you were at the forefront. I think you, you built a search engine leveraging a limb before anyone else. Is that factual? That is that's absolutely correct. Um, we set a high bar. We didn't know ChatGPT was coming. Um, but when we played around with language models, hallucination was a real problem. Um, at one level, like middle of last year, it was clear that you could give a 1,500-word blog to one of these models um, and have it do what's called an abstractive summary, um, a, a summary not done by, uh, you know, picking out words, but by actually abstracting the concept in the blog and turn it around in like a second. Um, it's, it's like it's real magic uh, because like humans, we just can't read that fast, for example. Um, but on the other hand, if you ask models questions about things that they were not really sure of, they would just hallucinate. They would make up stuff. So the bar that Vivek and I set for ourselves was that the AI answers that we provided, um, they um, had to be referenceable, meaning we needed to tell our readers where this information was coming from. It had to be real time. Uh, the world keeps changing, and so, you know, you can't have 2021 is the limit of my knowledge. Um, and also, it needed to understand authority. Um, and the way we did that was by using a, a, a phrase and a technique that's now, I'm sure, familiar to all of you. It was called retrieval augmented generation. Um, a way to think about that is LLMs combined with tool use. Just like, you know, humanity and culture exploded, when we develop not only language, but also tool use and the ability to therefore then convey this tool use through generations. Similarly, there's, there's a revolution happening with large language models um, where they have incredible linguistic power, but they're also savants. But when you combine them with tools like search, the ability to call APIs, um, there's going to be a big revolution in how we get information, how we consume information, and uh, hopefully also many real-world things like how we go about purchasing things, but that's a, that's a whole other story. Yeah. Multiple sectors are going to be disrupted in big ways, most definitely enterprise data, which was part of what excited Vivek and me. Yeah, so <clears throat> I think you and I were chatting recently that in, in, in the hype of Gen AI, which, which 
we, we know, as Streeter just said, it's a technology that's going to disrupt and change. But it's often lost, this notion that these things make up stuff sometimes. I think as you, you and I were commenting on the, yeah, people ask ChatGPT and then go and verify Google search. Yeah, I mean, even, even now, it's, it's a common thing with me. I pay for ChatGPT. I have it on my home screen. Um, by the way, I forget who it was that said it. It might have been our friend Brad Gerstner who said, like, hey, listen, if you don't have ChatGPT on your home screen, you're, like, behind the times. Um, but I have ChatGPT on my home screen. I, you know, but have to go through a process of trying to figure out, hmm, is this question mainstream enough that I can actually ask it of ChatGPT and get an answer that I can trust? Um, or if it's obscure, I have to worry that it'll just manufacture something um, and I have to go and verify. Um, yeah. Just the other day, you know, I was asking it for, this is just a random thing that happened. I listened to, I listened to a song. I was like, oh, tell me the characteristics of this frog that was playing. It, was, it completely manufactured an essay for what, the, you know, what this frog was. Um, it had nothing to do um, with the structure of the music. Um, but, you know, these are solvable techniques, and we are, I feel we are just on the threshold of being able to solve it. Um, but it's really language models, tool use, how we orchestrate them together. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a little bit like the early Internet. You know you're on the threshold of something magical. You can't wait for it to show up. So, so then maybe tell us a little bit more about the team, yep. Niva team, and, and, and the technologies that, that you, you bring, because it's a very unique, world-class uh, team and technology you put together. Yeah, so this was a team of 50 that built a search engine from scratch. We crawled the web at, uh, you know, at a scale that we imposed on ourselves, two, three hundred million documents. Um, we, you know, we have crawled many petabytes of, uh, of data as a single team, paying for, uh, paying for S3 storage. Um, we ran an index that was six, eight billion pages um, and an incredibly low cost uh, uh, system that costs on the order of a few hundred thousand dollars to be able to serve web search, uh, web search traffic. Um, but we also had to pick up really, really important skills uh, last year through this year. Uh, and this was driven by the fact that, you know, yes, we did not have access to 5,000 uh, A100s. Um, that was out of even our budget. As I said, we were a well-funded startup. We were spending $10 million on uh, OPEX. Um, but them, them fleets of 5,000 uh, A100s cost a bit more. Than a A100 GPUs, which are in short supply. <laughs> Um, roughly think of them as 8K a pop. And so if you're like, I want, I want 8K a pop uh, per year, if you're like, you want 5,000, do the math, that's $40 million. You're like, that's not going to happen. Um, so what we did a lot of was we um, began to understand things like uh, you can do with fine-tuning, you can do with human feedback, um, problems that can be solved by much larger models. Um, and so we pioneered a set of techniques in what's called transfer learning, um, where you really um, can use the output of large models in order to train small models. Um, that is, again, a profound change um, for how models are trained, because I've done evals, like, you know, for the last 20 years. A lot of Google search quality, ads quality, have all been based on humans very painstakingly labeling stuff. Um, so, but a lot of companies, certainly Neva, but also Google and OpenAI, what they're doing is they're taking the very largest models, taking their output as then training data for the smaller models, which get to be just as good as the big models for specific classes 
of uh, problem. We also had to pioneer a whole bunch of techniques in order to make them fast. Um, I'm sure some of you have used Sydney, uh, and I've openly expressed frustration with Kevin Scott, the Microsoft CTO, that Sydney is so slow. Uh, that's because it runs on a very large model. So we also did a whole bunch of techniques to speed up inference. Uh, but these are, again, the building blocks for how you go about using large language models in practice. Part of what is really exciting now about things like Snowpark containers is that uh, um, we took our original fine-tuning scripts for some of the problems that we were solving um, and worked with the Snowflake team over the last two weeks, mind you, uh, to be able to push our fine-tuning script into a Snowpark container so where we can download a model from Hugging Face, we can fine-tune it, and have the output be stored somewhere. Um, again, you know, then we'll be figuring out how to, you know, run inference on them. We've shown some demos to Christian already. Um, but we want to turn these into recipes so that all of our customers can natively use language models. Um, all of us are very enamored by things like chatbots and tool use. And yes, those are the sexy applications, but there is incredible value to be created in things like understanding documents and things like sentiment analysis, translation of all kinds of feedback that comes into your product. A lot of boring business problems that carry incredible value for all of the enterprises. Those are the things that we want to make sure that we enable. Of course, you know, you also have to be where the cutting edge of technology is. Um, and so making sure that we can use the same technologies to power co-pilots both in a one-piece sense um, where you get assistive experiences for everything from writing SQL to writing streamlets to being able to produce dashboards, um, plus also making sure we have this technology be usable by our customers as they think about what our transformative experiences they want to build. Um, so these are all in our roadmap. You know, we're like kids in a candy store, pretty excited. Yeah. And, and by the way, that, that's super important for all of you, which is the, even though on the surface, Oh, yeah, Neva is consumer search. Is something getting to consumer search? No. Um, but everything Sridhar is saying is the techniques, the technology, the approach. How do you put into production one of these language models? Easy to say. Really hard to do it and do inference in 100 milliseconds, 200 milliseconds. 100%. Um, you know, for, for something to be an interactive app, you have to finish up search uh, to retrieve context and then a language model run to produce a fluid answer. Like you don't really have more than eight, nine hundred milliseconds before people are like, yeah, this is sort of, this is sort of slow. Um, and uh, to create high-quality experiences needs a lot of deep technical expertise. Um, and uh, but again, something like Snowpark containers is the ideal vehicle for us to be able to take some of these, as I said, turn them into recipes that our customers can use. Um, and there's there, there's a lot here. The, the one, one last comment on, on the applicability of what Neva built is think of use cases like search for a marketplace. And, and the Sri Lanka team already took, pointed their crawler into the marketplace. Tell us about some of the things that you showed me, which is incredibly amazing. Yeah, I mean, uh, as I said, language models have hallucination problems. Language models have authority problems. An increasingly important layer of software that is going to exist between us humans and the language models um, is going to be uh, this piece that sits on the side that is going to provide context for the language model. In the, con in, in the context of Neva, the consumer search engine, um, this meant that we would run search on whatever it is that the user typed, but we would also make sure 
that we took care of like intent disambiguation. A word like swift, for example, has all kinds of meaning. Obviously, it means fast, um, but it's also a banking code. There's a, there's a laptop with that same name. It's a programming language. Taylor Swift. Huh? Taylor Swift. Taylor, well, that's also <laughs> Taylor Swift. Um, but disambiguating so that you can feed the right context into the language model becomes important. So expertise um, in doing really good retrieval and clustering is a fairly important part of how you make a uh, language model work. In fact, uh, you know, all of the cool kids that are doing startups these days, um, they operate on uh, what's, what's, what's called, uh, you know, a, a Langchain, Pinecone, OpenAI uh, kind of stack, um, where Pinecone is the one that's used to do vector retrieval, um, Langchain is the orchestration layer, and OpenAI is the model. It's a cheap way to get a nice demo going, um, but you need industrial strength versions of this. So on the marketplace, for example, we just hooked up a retrieval engine um, to crawl all the entries off the marketplace, um, combined it with the language model, and all of a sudden you have uh, an interactive app where, uh, you know, to quote Jensen from yesterday, you can basically talk to the marketplace. Um, but we want to enable this on other subset of docs to be able to do the same thing. Um, for analytical questions that you might have on your data, um, but it's the, same it's the same technique. You set context, and the language model understands the context to answer your questions. Yeah. So, so we are incredibly excited to have Sridhar, the broader Neva team, the technology, the expertise they have. We wanted to, to have Sridhar here just to, to give you a glimpse of what's in front of us that has not been shared at the conference, and uh, it's super exciting, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Christian. Thank you all for your time. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> now, I'll introduce Chris Degnan, Chief Revenue Officer. And, yeah, I'll let Chris introduce our customer guests. Thank you. All right. Hey, everyone. Uh, my name is uh, Chris Dagnan. I'm the Chief Revenue Officer of Snowflake. I've been with Snowflake for about 10 years. Rob, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi, my name is Rob Smedley. I'm the Vice President of Technology at Disney Parks Experiences and Products, responsible for all things data. So data platforms. I'll have a seat. Right? Yeah, have a seat. Yeah, data platforms, data products, data management, data governance. Uh, parks Experiences and Products, if you don't know, is our global parks and resorts business. Also includes uh, Disney Signature Experiences, which is uh, Disney Cruise Line, Disney Vacation Club, Adventures by Disney, uh, and it also includes our consumer products business, which is our Disney stores, our Shop Disney e-commerce business, as well as uh, licensing, publishing, and games. Awesome. Well, Rob, thanks for for doing this with us today. Appreciate it. Um, <clears throat> maybe just give the audience a sense of what what motivated you to move to Snowflake in the first place, and what other solutions did you look at when you were doing that. Yeah, we were at this kind of crossroads. We, we had a large Teradata warehouse kind of on-prem in our, in our data center in Orlando, uh, and we had just reached capacity. You know, as, as data got bigger and more complex and our, and our use cases got more advanced, you know, being constrained by compute and storage, just we, we were stuck. Uh, we are in the midst of this attempt at a data migration uh, into a Hadoop platform. It wasn't going particularly well, uh, and we got accelerated pressure to get out of our data center. We had to migrate to the cloud. So we started looking for some solution uh, that allowed us to really just lift and shift what we had in Teradata into the cloud. Uh, you know, tremendous cost savings associated with getting out of the data center. Uh, 
Um, and it still, you know, also opened up, you know, scalable compute and, and got rid of some of the problems that we had. And that's where we found Snowflake. Uh, that was, uh, I don't know, maybe three years ago or so. And uh, we completed that uh, migration in the, in the last year, I'd say. So, um, so that was kind of my next question is kind of you, you, you've gone through some of the, mi the migration. You've got some of your legacy systems. What, where, what's the phase or how far along are you in, in your enterprise migration? Yeah, I mean, in terms of moving to Snowflake, we've retired all of our kind of legacy platforms that we had, our Teradata platform, our Hadoop platform. We had some data in Redshift. All of that's been migrated to Snowflake. Uh, due to the, the speed at which we were moving, we really didn't have any other option but to just lift and shift that into Snowflake. So great new modern platform, really old patterns and data architecture. Uh, so in terms of really being able to advance our use of data, we needed that refactor. So that was kind of the next step. So we started that in the past year, I'd say, we've started that refactor, taking our most valuable data and saying, all right, we're going to modernize our data architecture uh, and get that ready really for that, that next phase. Our, our initial move to Hadoop was motivated by uh, AI and ML readiness. Uh, we didn't really get there. I think this, where we are in terms of modernizing our data architecture, that's, I think, really what it's about now for us. Awesome. Um, so what business cases do we support, or does Snowflake help you support um, within Disney Parks? Yeah, I'd, I'd probably categorize that in two ways. I'd say, first of all, I mean, data drives everything that happens at Disney Parks, right? You can't walk into a park, and, you know, with a ticket and order food and ride a ride and stay in a resort. Every decision in the business is powered by data. So just day-to-day -day running of the business, uh, uh, for sure, is, is, is coming out of Snowflake. I think... You know, the next piece of that, though, which is, is we're a little bit in the present and a little bit in the future, uh, and this is something I saw uh, a few years ago I started talking about at Disney, is that uh, we, we used to see kind of the big data analytics world as an analytics function, and then there was this operational function, and it felt like, I don't know, maybe back in 2018, those lines were starting to blur and now start to disappear. Um, so that's kind of the next, the next wave of, of Snowflake capabilities for us is, Yes, all of the analytics, I can, I can wait five minutes, 15 minutes to get my data. But now, really powering you know, customer-facing uh, use cases. Uh, that's, that's really the next frontier for us. Awesome. And so you're, you're obviously a, a, a large customer of ours. And um, so how do you evaluate getting more budget and spending more budget or money with Snowflake? Yeah, I mean, every time there's a new system or a new thing that generates data. You know, we're very project-driven at Disney. Everything comes, we kind of fund tech almost the way we fund construction projects sometimes. Um, but every time there's a new system, something generates data, or every time we have some new use for data, that's a project for us. So we, you know, we evaluate what's the benefit of that project, revenue or cost efficiency or whatever, and you balance that with the costs of implementing. So that's, you know, we take that into account. Uh, I'd say the other side of that, though, is there's, there's a clear recognition that data is a differentiator for us, that data strategy is extremely important to us. Uh, I, I, we tend to forgive a little bit the difficulty that you have sometimes tying data directly to revenue. Or, you know, it's, it's hard to make those, those jumps sometimes. Uh, so we are invested in, in, in our foundation. Uh, so it's not always a matter of, you know, okay, I have a, a, a you know, top line, bottom line uh, benefit. So, so uh, probably a lot of these, these folks in the room have a question because, you know, you, you've been on this journey for a while. You've been using the consumption model. So how do you, how do you manage the consumption model um, at Disney? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, first and foremost, you have to put the effort into optimization. 
You know, when we did our lift-in shift from Teradata to Snowflake, and we did this eyes wide open, you know, we had code that was probably written in 2005 yeah. that we're lifting into, you know, if you expect that to run efficiently, I mean, it's not going to. You're going to have to do something to, to make it run efficiently. Uh, so you do have to put that, that effort in. You know, when we first did that migration, we were like 2, 3x what we thought we were. You know, we had no idea how to estimate and, you know, this maybe a slight panic, but a reassurance. We knew this was going to happen, but, but it didn't take long for us to make incredible gains in, in optimizing and, and, and controlling those costs. And, and in the process, we got very mature in, in our modeling of you know, our, how expensive is this new thing going to be. We're, we're, it's very easy for us to now predict. I, I know what this is going to cost. Um, you know, so we're able to make those decisions you know, pretty well informed. I mean, it's important, I think, as you, as you guys yeah. you know, scale your business, you have to be able to budget accordingly, and, yep. and you guys have done a good job of that. Yep. Um, okay, so uh, where does Snowflake actually sit in your data management stack? Yeah, I mean, right in the center. So <laughs> Snowflake is kind of the core uh, of, what we, of, what we, of what we've designed. We run Snowflake in AWS. Uh, so we, we tend to use some native AWS kind of components to get data in. We use you know, Kinesis and uh, Amazon's uh, data migration service, things like that. Um, we have invested in Alation uh, as our data catalog uh, for data governance. Uh, I'm very, very bullish on DBT. I think uh, as someone who comes from a very traditional software engineering background, kind of the shock that I had when I got into the data space years ago was like, wow, the, the engineering practices that, that I'm so used to, I don't, I don't see those in the data engineering space. Uh, and with tools like DBT, it's really enabled us to, to use Snowflake and also have CICD and test automation and all these things that were kind of kind of second nature to us. Um, you know, we have other tools that we look at. You know, we're looking at uh, DB, uh, DBT, uh, Big ID to help us with you know compliance and governance things like that. So it's great, and all these are Snowflake partners, which, yeah. is, which is great. Um, so you, you just heard Sridhar talk about you know Gen AI. What, what do you? What's your perspective at, at Disney Parks around generative AI? Yeah, I mean. It's, it's real. I mean, I, I don't, there is a ton of hype around it, and there's a lot of work to, I think, be done to, to see the big revolution come. Um, but I do believe it's, it is one of the most um, disruptive uh, innovations that we've seen, you know, top three disruptive innovations in my lifetime, for sure. So it's a, it's a very real thing, and, and, and we're absolutely, I mean, Disney is a company, especially Parks, that was built on the idea of innovation. We're absolutely looking at Gen AI, uh, and, and hope to be a leader in that space. But, but first, you know, focus on the data. And, and, you know, I talked about how we're in the middle of that kind of refactoring of the data, that cleansing of that data, so it's ready. It's not ready today. And, and uh, you know, we can go and do some, some Gen AI use cases and it'll be flashy and everybody will be pretty happy with it. But we're going to hit a wall really, really quick if we don't first focus on the data. I just, we kind of ran over here from, the, from Basecamp. I just finished a, a talk myself where I talked about if you don't invest now, or you haven't already started to invest in, in cleaning up the data, um, you're, you're, you have no chance. Uh, and, and every day that you wait, you're going to get farther and farther behind in that race. Uh, so that's, you know, I think, really where our focus is today. So. Similar story that you, we heard today from uh, Mahir at Fidelity. Yeah. He said the same exact thing. So yeah. it's, it's great to hear. Um, the la fi final question we have is, uh, do you have any you know, plans to adopt you know, newer technologies from Snowflake, like Snowpark, Iceberg Tables, et cetera? Anything that's coming up for you? Yeah, a lot. And uh, that might last probably a little bit longer than it was maybe on Sunday, <laughs> Sunday <Yes>. evening. Um, <laughs> there's some pretty interesting things coming. I, I think Iceberg is, is important to me. Uh, that external storage of data, um, that helps me mitigate risk. Um, you know, Snow... snow 
Snowflake as a choice for our warehouse helped me mitigate risk because I didn't have to lock myself into GCP, right? I, I can go where I want in terms of cloud, having you know, cloud flexibility. Um, external storage of data gives me flexibility and risk mitigation in the storage of my data, and that allows me then uh, to take bigger bets on some of these new products, some of these new features that are coming out on Snowflake. Um, I, can go, I can go harder into some of those, knowing that I'm mitigating my risk uh, elsewhere. So that, that's really big for me. Uh, streaming, for sure. Um, you know, as those operational use cases get more and more important, uh, you know, it used to be 15-minute latency, it was okay. Then it was five, then it was one. Now we've got to move faster, so we'll be early adopters of, of snow, uh, Snowpipe streaming. Uh, Snowpark, for sure. Um, uh, we are very big on data applications and data products, and I think Snowpipe, uh, uh, Snowpark gives us a you know, ton of capability there. I'll be very interested when Unistore is, is when we're ready for Unistore, um, because I think that's going to be a big, uh, big innovation, especially as we're going, you know, towards those operational use cases. So Christian, we have to we have to type faster. Yeah, yeah. So so yeah, Rob, thank thank. I think we love, you know, at Snowflake we love customers like you who are actually willing to try our new technologies, give us feedback early. So thank you for the partnership, and we look forward to continuing to partner with you in the future. Yeah, thank you. All right, thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Christian. And thank, thank you, Sridhar. All right, for our final segment before Q&A, I'd like to welcome Mike Scarpelli, our Chief Financial Officer. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm glad I'm here in person this year, having not made it last year. And I'm glad I, or I apologize, I didn't get to talk to many of you after our last earnings call, as I think I was dying with pneumonia. But um, Anyways, um, um, hopefully you guys are getting a really good view of what we're doing. I know a lot of people have had questions about generative AI and what we're doing, and this is not something that we just thought about, and I hope you've seen that. We've been thinking about this for many years, what we're doing, and that's one of the things that I've said in the past, too. When Snowflake does something, we don't just roll out a new feature tomorrow. Many of the things we work on take years to develop, and we have other things we haven't talked about, and we're not going to talk about them until we know technically we've proven it, we're going to have a product. So what I want to do today um, is I really want to give you some of our highlights from 2023. You know, we're really proud of 2023. We grew our product revenue by 70%. Not many companies at that scale to go to 1.9 billion have been able to do that. We expanded our non-GAAP operating margin by 700 basis points in 2023. We generated more than $500 million in free cash flow on a non-GAAP basis in 2023. Those are pretty spectacular numbers with the growth that we've done. And we're going to continue to show you guys leverage in the future, and I'll show you. So let's talk about where our growth opportunity is from here. You know, um, Gartner has come out with... Um, this new market thing. Our market is growing, and what I really want to get across here, whether it's 290 billion or 270 billion or three, it's a massive market opportunity. This is not one person take all. There's going to be many successful people 
in this market. But we think we are going to get more than our fair share of this market. Um, and I want to remind you, too, it's also a very competitive space with the three largest hyperscalers in the world, Google, Microsoft, and Amazon. Um, you can see from our announcements that we've had with our recent one with Microsoft and, and AWS, we have very good partnerships there, very good go-to-market alignment, which is getting better. Google is the one we still need to work on, and we're open to that. Um, they're just not as open to it. Um, and, you, you know, and we do think this market is just going to continue to grow with the proliferation of data, and I'm sure generative AI is going to create even more data. So I bet these numbers are even understated. But this is what gives us the confidence for our long-term model. Um, and I'll talk about that a little bit more later on. We're really focused on landing the largest organizations in the world. You know, um, three years ago, we had 16% of the global 2,000. Um, in Q1, we had 30% of the global 2,000. Um, we're really looking to land these large quality customers. It's all about quality of customer. And we have a long runway in front of us with these customers. Many of them are in the very early innings. Some are still at, in the warm-up stage before even going into the game in terms of migrating data to Snowflake. So I talked about quality, and I've said this before. You know, many people ask about, oh, your customer ads. I really don't focus on our customer ads. I focus on our large customer ads, those quality customers. And, and this is what I really focus on. Who are those customers that are going to be able to pay us a million a year, five million a year, 10 million a year, 20 million a year? We will have customers and many customers paying us north of 50 million a year. Um, and, we're, and we're at that stage right now with a, a few of our customers. So as of the end of 2023, we had 330 customers paying us north of a million a year. You can see that was up from 80 in 2021. We have 60 customers paying us more than 5 million a year. That was up from 13 in 2021. And 20 customers are over 10 million, and we have 10 million or 10 customers that are north of 20 million a year. These numbers will continue to grow with Snowflake. And you know, it's surprising to me, even our largest customers, I thought two years ago they were probably as big as they were going to get. And we're still identifying opportunity, and they're continuing to grow um, with us. Um, you know, I really want to focus on a lot of people don't understand. When we land customers, we land customers small. It's rare that customers start off at a million year. Our average, if you look at all of our million dollar customers, the average size these customers land at is 150,000 a year, and then they grow. That's what really leads to our net, why you see our net revenue retention continue to grow as well too, because most customers start small. And that's the beauty of a capacity business. When you talk to our customers, they're really just buying capacity. It's whether it's, and they may sign a three-year contract, but they're buying capacity. And whether they spend that in six months, a year, or two years, or three years, it doesn't really matter to us. Um, I actually don't get that hung up on what the bookings is. I get more hung up on what the revenue is from those customers. Um, and, you know, migrations. This is one of the things that gives us confidence that our customers are going to continue to grow. Um, we started tracking. This is really um, self-reported by our GSIs. But our, our top GSIs, and this is not all of our GSIs, they tend to be our bigger GSIs, in 2022, they self-reported $847 million in uh, services revenue associated with Snowflake um, work. Last year, 
um, uh, billion dollars in services work. Customers don't spend this type of money on services around Snowflake if their intention is not to grow with Snowflake and consume Snowflake. And when customers are making a decision to go with Snowflake, these are multi-year decisions. These are not a one-year decision. We're replacing systems. Some of the Teradata systems we're replacing are 20 years old, 15 years old. And so when customers are looking to do these migrations, they're making technology decisions for the next 5 to 10 to 15 years on Snowflake. That's what gives us the confidence that we're going to continue to grow and hit our longer-term numbers. Um, in terms of time to migrate, this is the one thing, and I get asked a lot of questions by people. Are you, what are you doing to accelerate the time to migrate? You know, the biggest challenge to migrating customers is customers' timeline. How quick do they want to go? How quick do they want to go? Many of our new customers that we're landing now want to go at their timeline because they want to make sure they do it right. Um, you heard Rob from um, Disney Park. He was talking about, well, they just migrated all their data and didn't really focus on the quality of data and re-architecting it. Most of our customers now, when they're doing a migration, there's a lot of work that goes into ensuring that the data, when it goes to Snowflake, is architected properly so they can take the full advantage of that data in their business. That's one of the things that takes the time. So it's still taking us, on average, 240 days for a customer to actually ramp to their initial contract value and what they're consuming. But once they do that, then they start to grow. And I also want to stress, too, it's labor-intensive, too. You can have the best migration tools to convert code, but there's still it's billions and billions of lines of code that are getting translated. But you've got to make sure everything is right. And there's time that still goes into this manual time to make these migrations successful. Um, you know, our expansion patterns. You know, if you look at our recent NRR in the 150 range, that's actually back to where it was in 2021. I, I would say that 2022, there was probably a little bit of euphoria with customer spending. Um, and now we're seeing it more back to what we would say was um, normal. I'm not saying it's not going to go down. I don't think it's going to stay at these rates forever as our customer base continues to grow. But it will be above 130, and I've said this many times for a very, very long time. But what's interesting is when you look at our Global 2000, our large customers, this is what I like, their net revenue expansion rate has been very stable. These are the ones that are a lot more disciplined on doing these big migrations. They take their time, but they are growing, and they will continue to grow. So I, I really like the net revenue retention within these Global 2000. There's still a massive growth opportunity in front of us. If you look at the G2Ks alone, our average spend today for a global 2000 is $1.4 million. Our customers, that, those 330 customers I talked about that are paying over a million a year, their average spend is $3.7 million. There is no reason why a global 2000 can't spend $10 million plus on Snowflake. I'm not going to say it's going to happen overnight, but these guys have massive IT budgets and what they're doing. That is not a big dollar for a global 2000. Our top 25 customers, on average, spent $18 million a year. And these numbers will continue to grow over time. We believe the G2K customers will get to similar or larger size than our average, our average million-dollar customer between now and 2029 in our, in our, our longer-term model. Um, and when you talk to these customers, you talk to Rob was just up here from Disney, 
they have aspirations to do more on Snowflake. And that's what we're really um, working on. And that's one of the reasons why we talk about all these new product announcements. It's to get our existing customers to grow more in Snowflake. And it's really our existing customers today with some new customers coming on that are going to get us to where we need to be for that 10 billion target that we had, had put out. And I also want to say, too, as of the end of last year, only 17 of those top 25 customers are G2K. There's still some non-G2K, relatively smaller customers that are, in, that are big spenders on Snowflake. But we do see a shift with our largest customers from a revenue standpoint, shifting to those large enterprises. And more so because they're just growing faster than some of those other smaller customers that were significant consumers of Snowflake. In terms of our go-to-market strategy, um, I think this is really important. Um, we're really aligned, and this is something we've done over the last few years. We're aligned by theater. In theaters, we have U.S. verticals. We have our enterprise. Our enterprise is really focused. Our verticals is focused on the largest customers within the verticals we play in. Think of financial services, healthcare, and, and other. The enterprise is really focused on accounts with 500 or more employees. You have our corporate that is focused on those sub-500 employees, and our corporate sales is really an inside sales motion. And then we now are aligned by industry, um, and the industry is these eight industries that we have lined up here. And then we're also aligned by workload. That's something relatively new that we're really focused on within the sales, going into, because it's really important we've under, uh, we understand to actually go in and sell customers on workloads. This really is a workload by workload sales when we're going into our customers to get them to grow. But it's so important, we really sell one product at Snowflake with three different, ver four versions, you could say. We have our, 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 our standard, our enterprise business critical, and then VPS. One of the things I do notice, very few customers actually start out today on VPS, virtual private Snowflake. Used to be most financial institutions wanted that. Um, now we're finding they're comfortable with the security within our own um, our regular Snowflake multi-tenant environment, um, that they're, they're, they're comfortable going into that because VPS should do sacrifice some of the things of data sharing and other things. Um, and, and I really want to get across, too, and our product really supports this full spectrum of workloads from data engineering to data science, AI, MI, applications. We're super excited about the native app development within Snowflake and the things you're going to be able to do with um, 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 Streamlit. And one of the things we've really been focused on the last few years is really ensuring that our salespeople are equipped to sell the specific workloads. A lot of our sales enablement in the last year has all been around Snowpark. How do you sell Snowpark going into a customer? Because many times you're really, t that's a very different conversation than a data warehouse migration. Um, and so it took time to train people. And we're, we're learning and sales enablement for these specific workloads is really key where we're investing a lot of money. Um, in terms of when organizations land on Snowflake, they arrive with complex data states. It was, it was interesting. The um, gentleman um, um, from Fidelity, if you saw when he was up there, he talked about they had 170 different data silos that they want to migrate. And what's interesting, they've been three years into that journey, and he still said they have another 18 months to go. These are long. They'll be five years into this journey. Um, before they fully migrate all the stuff. And I want to get that across to people. These take time. 
they take a lot of time. And some customers, I think, are going to take 10 years. But the first thing most customers want to do is they want to really consolidate their data silos. What Frank talked about, to really get the benefit of AI, you need to have your data in a very structured architect properly in one location. That's what our customers are focused on doing. Um, and, and I also want to stress too, we migrate a variety of legacy um, um, vendors into Snowflake, whether it's Teradata or your traditional data warehouses, Hadoop, a lot of SQL, a lot of things we're migrating. But when we win, we're really winning workload by workload. And these expansions take years. And each opportunity, this is important too, we may have won one workload, but when we're trying to do another workload, we're competing with someone else for that workload. It's not just given to us. Our salespeople have to be involved in those customers. And that's really important. A lot of people think, well, it's kind of like an annuity. Once you sell a customer, why do you need to have salespeople? You always need to have salespeople in there because you're always going to be attacked workload by workload, whether it's by the hyperscalers or some other technologies out there. Yes, I do listen to you, Chris. That's why we need to pay salespeople. Um, it's, it's, it's actually really important. And we do a lot of migrations. You know, in 2023, we did 2,410 migrations. We replaced over 3,000 vendors within our customers, and these will continue. Um, and it takes a lot of and this is why it's super important to us that we have relations with GSIs. We get them to build practices because we can't do all this work. Yes, we have a PS organization, but we need our partners to help this uh, that are in at our customers. And also you need those partners to actually advocate for you so that you're getting the work and not someone else. Snowpark. In, you know, in November 2022, um, we've talked about Snowpark for a while. But in November 2022, it became um, available for Python. It was generally available. Um, this new capability brings a new competitive landscape. It's really unlocking new workloads for us. Um, and it is taking off within us. We're now replacing Spark, EMR, and Databricks. And I have the data. I can see that. Um, these are not legacy solutions. We compete against each incumbent vendor in this space. Snowpark is taking its share. What this graph is showing you is two Spark um, technologies that are running within our customer base. I can see that. The blue at the bottom is Snowpark. And you can see how now Snowpark consumption, this is looking at daily credits, what they're consuming is now outpacing Spark number one. And it's going to surpass Spark number two. And so what you're seeing also is those ones we're growing within our customer base, we're growing much faster than them. So we feel that Snowpark is being very successful and it will continue to grow. But once again, we're still in the very, very early innings. You know, um, Christian talked about the price benefit of Snowpark and it's anywhere from 2x to 12x. Um, we have one. Um, financial services customer that actually replaced Databricks and they saved $4 million a year by doing this and a huge cost benefit to our customers. And you may say, well, why is it that it saves you, saves those customers that much money? You have to remember these Spark workloads that are running in our Snowflake customers, they take the data out of Snowflake. There's a cost to move that data. 
They do the spark outside of Snowflake. Then they push that data back into Snowflake, and there's a cost to do that too. Plus, they're incurring the compute and storage costs while it's out of Snowflake. And if we can show customers you can do it at a, the same performance or better running it in Snowflake at a fraction of the cost, why would you move that data outside of Snowflake? Not to mention, you have much better governance and security on that data. You, you know exactly where that data is. And so we are seeing a lot of really good traction with um, um, Snowpark, and we're pretty excited about that um, um, as well. And what I will say is we've done a lot of successful POCs. We've done a few customers that have migrated into production. Those are in the very early innings, and there's a lot that are planned over the next 6 to 12 months. Because once again, it's not a... It, it is a migration again. It takes professional services to do these migration of these Spark workloads to Snowpark. And customers need to prioritize it, and they need to have their people involved in doing these things. So they take time. In terms of um, um, early signs of adoption and really looking at here, so if you look at our customers over $1 million a year, 100% of those customers are data warehousing customers. 85% are using Snowpark. I would say many of them are still in the kind of the POC trying it that aren't fully um, deployed with Snowpark. 65% are using some AI ML capabilities. 70% are using data sharing. And data sharing will continue to grow. That data sharing I want to stress with people too is probably one of the key differentiators of Snowflake. And data sharing drives new customer adoption for us because when we become the standard in certain industries and you want to get data, we have customers telling their vendors, you must be a Snowflake customer because that's how we want to get our data through data sharing. If a company like DTC is successful in what they want to do, that is driving financial services firms um, to Snowflake because they want to be part of that. Um, this whole network effect created by data sharing is unique to Snowflake. But if you look at all of our customers, 95% are data warehousing, only 35 are using Snowpark today. 20 are using AI, and 25% are doing some type of data sharing. But we do expect as those customers grow, you're going to see more of these other workload adoptions within those customers. You know, M&A. M&A is not something we just do haphazardly. All of our, when we're doing an M&A deal, and I spend a lot of time on M&A with Christian and Benoit and Greg and others, it's all about how is this going to accelerate our product roadmap. When we're looking at M&A, we're looking for things that will accelerate our product roadmap. You, you can see in 2022, we did two acquisitions. Those were more um, uh, talent acquisitions. We, we, we made the decision back in 2022, actually 2021, we're going to build up an engineering um, focus in um, Poland. Most of those people are focused on connectors. Think of ServiceNow connector and other things, but they're doing other things too. To accelerate that um, opening of that office, we did, we did two aqua hires, two deals in um, Poland. But then in 2023, we acquired Streamlit. That was an unbelievable acquisition, and we're super excited about that. Christian talked about the Applica. That was a year ago when we did Applica. It was in Q2, end of Q2 when we did that. And this is all about the document AI. Um, it's, so it's not something we were just thinking about today when AI has been talked about. We've been thinking about this for a long time. And then um, recently, Neva to Snow Convert. Snow Convert is mobilized. One of the reasons we bought mobilized was to help with our customer migrations, whether it's off of 
Teradata, Netiza, um, Exadata, whatever. They help a lot with that. And by the way, we're, and we're going to continue to do M&A, but it's always focused on how is it going to help accelerate our product roadmap. But the most important piece of all M&A is does the team have the right DNA to fit into our engineering organization? That is super important. And, and i got to tell you, um, Christian, Benoit, and the team, they do unbelievable diligence on the people. And they're always, would I hire these people if they were standalone people? Really important. Um, forecast visibility. You know, this chart is showing an, uh, an early um, journey of a top 10 customer. Um, and over the course of a few years, this customer signed multiple contracts to support their consumption. And you can see the dark blue line is, that's the contract they signed, what the contract rate is. The blue line is their product revenue. And you can see here that some quarters, the ACV is below the revenue. Other quarters, it's above the revenue. And the important piece about this is what I'm trying to show people is we don't predict our future revenue based upon bookings. We predict the future revenue based upon what our customers are consuming today, looking back historically and how we expect them to grow. If you look at our models, they're not driven by bookings at all. Yes, it is driven by number of new customers, but it's not the dollar amount or the bookings amount of those new customers. Um, and that's a really important thing. It is different in a, in a consumption model like Snowflake versus a SaaS company. That's why we never talk about bookings or billings. Yes, we disclose RPO because you're required to do that, but that's not how we forecast our business. Um, big topic that um, a lot of you have um, been talking about recently. It's not something new to us. We've talked about optimizations all the time. Um, and I will tell you, optimizations will continue to happen in a year from now, three years from now, five years from now, just like they've happened since day one of the history of Snowflake. But there's really three buckets of optimizations that happen at Snowflake. We control two of them. The third, we don't control. The first one is the CSPs, Amazon, Azure, um, Google. These are hardware improvements. And I want to stress too, and I've said this in the past before, not all hardware improvements benefit our software. Yes, Graviton 2 had a big impact on our software performance. Um, and um, our customers get the benefit of all of these things. Um, Snowflake software improvements. Um, probably last year uh, or two years ago, one of the big ones was storage compression that Christian talked about. And I want to remind people, every two years we generally have new storage compression that comes out, and our customers get the benefit of that. But there's also things like our warehouse scheduling service. There's going to be another big one that's going to come out next year, which is going to be Auto, uh, auto warehouse sizing for customers. That's one of the biggest challenges for customers today is how do you size the right warehouse so they're not, you don't have a bunch of, you're not paying for a bunch of capacity you're not using for when you're sizing those warehouse. That will be a software improvement. We control those. We control how they get rolled out. Um, if you were at the uh, session this morning, um, one of the uh, engineers, Allison Lee, she talked about um, last year they built this tracker and this is gross, not net. Um, they estimate that it was a 15% performance improvement for our customers because of the 
improvements that happened in software, but it's also the hardware coming into there as well too. Net benefit, I want to remind people, we expect a net 5% revenue headwind every year due to the hardware and the software improvements. The third bucket is customers. And customer optimizations are very different. We do expect they're going to continue to happen. Um, we, we, you, you heard Rob from Disney talk about, well, they just loaded all their data into Snowflake, and then they had to kind of really clean up that data. That is an efficient spend they had on Snowflake. That was an optimization they went through. Those are typical things that um, customers do. Um, I've talked about in the, the past that another thing that customers do when you load your data into Snowflake, you index your data. When you have that data indexed, it's easier to search. It runs more efficiently. If you're loading data and you don't index it or your indexing gets out, your queries don't run as efficiently and it's not as accurate. So we have customers that are going in and re-indexing their data. These are normal things and they'll always happen within customers. They're not new to today. Um, we talked about um, on the last earnings call, we had one large customer. It was another division of um, maybe the person who was up here. They decided to reduce their amount of storage um, from being five years retention down to three. That was seven petabytes of data. In that customer's mind, that was an optimization. They're still doing the same amount of work on Snowflake. They're just not running those queries against the same amount of data, so it saves them a lot of money both on the storage and the compute side. That is a choice that a customer makes, but we don't control that stuff. So I really want to stress that customer optimizations are always going to happen. We don't control them, but they will always happen, and we expect them to happen. Um, FY29 targets. You know, um, we still feel very confident that we will reach $10 billion in revenue and product revenue in 2029. Um, we expect our, our non-GAAP product margin to be 78%. Um, and what I will say there, right now we guide it this quarter to, or this year we're in right now, is 76. You may say, well, why aren't you going to see more? Um, yes, we got better pricing out of Microsoft. Um, Frank talked about that new contract. We're getting good pricing out of AWS. I will say Google is almost 50% more expensive on egress, storage, and compute right now um, with us. Um, one of the reasons why I don't, I'm not forecasting it to go above, there's things like Unistore that are going to come out. Unistore requires double the storage to happen within a customer. We expect there may be new features that come out that could be a headwind to expanding that product um, uh, margin more than that. So I don't feel comfortable right now going above 78% um, longer term. Um, um, and if you non-GAAP operating margin, we do expect that's going to expand. We're taking that from 20 to 25. Um, and we're taking free cash flow from 25 to 30% um, for 2029. Um, one of the things here that I think is important is um, net revenue retention. Um, we've been spending a lot of time looking at net revenue, looking at various maturity cohorts. Um, customers in their second year at Snowflake, um, we call the year two cohort, grow at a faster rate than those at the six-year um, cohort. And in 2024, we've seen both young and old cohorts expand beyond their historical rates. And we do feel this is something of the environment in 2024. Um, where customers have been looking to save money because of uncertainty in their business. Um, these are what's driving some of the optimizations. Um, I don't see migration slow down within customers. It's really some of the expansions of workloads and customers trying to figure out how to use Snowflake um, more efficiently. 
Um, we, um, you know, we do view that there's going to be a slower ramp um, than we've seen historically, but it's going to be a stable expansion. And so w w we still feel comfortable that we can get to that $10 billion with a lower net revenue um, retention rate. Um, and we think that's um, reasonable based upon the customers that we have and what we're seeing. Um, and shifting to margins, I talked about margins already, um, so I'm not going to spend more time here. But we have seen dramatic expansion on the product margin. I think I told people at the time we were going public, you're never going to see product margins the same way you see in a traditional SaaS business. Think of a Salesforce or a ServiceNow. Why? Storage is a big component of what is in our COGS. Um, 10 to 12%, depending on the customer on average, is storage. Um, and, and that will be a headwind to, in storage, we don't make much margin on storage. Um, it's pretty much a pass-through. We make a little margin on it. But that will be a headwind to um, our, our product margins. Um, this is an important piece here, too. And a lot of people ask, how do you make the determination when to invest in your salespeople in particular? And i got to tell you, sales is what drives a lot of our budgeting uh, when we do things in terms of looking at productivity. And when we see productivity um, be above that one, the way we de de define it, we add more people. When we see it drop below the one, we slow our hiring down. Um, you can see in 2023, we came out at 0.9x below the one. So we have slowed our hiring down. doesn't mean we're not hiring people. We're not hiring people at the same pace because we really want to focus on getting our salespeople productive. Um, in terms of... Free cash flow, this is an important thing too, and we've been getting the benefit of this in our free cash flow, is, you know, I've expected from the time I joined the company that customers are going to push back on payment terms up front. But it's surprising most customers still want to pay up front. Um, if you look here, 80% um, of our customers in 2023 paid annually in advance, 20% pay on other payment terms. That's either quarterly or monthly or monthly in arrears. Um, I do expect more customers are going to move over time to quarterly or monthly in arrears. Why? Because that's how Microsoft, Google, and Amazon charge their customers. Um, and so far, customers haven't pushed back. We're willing to do that with customers, but customers generally like to do annually in advance to get the benefit of a bigger discount. Um, and so it's a trade-off. If we're if the payment terms are going to change, it's going to have a positive impact on the, the, the product margins. Um, but um, I'm not seeing that pushback yet from customers, but I do expect that to happen. And that will impact free cash flow. That's a really important piece. Um, and I want to remind everyone as we're talking about free cash flow, the quarters where you have the highest cash flow are always going to be Q4 and Q1 is where we have our highest cash flow every quarter. And that's really the timing of most of our customer contracts. In terms of modeling considerations, um, important thing, um, we assume in our 2029 targets, less than 5% contribution from Snowpark based upon current consumption patterns. That could go up, it could go down, but that's based upon what we see today. Um, we assume insignificant contribution from Iceberg, Streamlit, and Unistore as I said, when we do our forecasting, it's based upon our historical consumption patterns of our customers based upon the products they're using. So I would say that's upside. 
Um, we're also not assuming um, any additional tailwinds for public sector or China. We are looking to launch into China. We will be in China next year, but it's not China for all customers. It is China for our global 2,000 customers that are outside of China that have operations in China that want to be able to leverage Snowflake in China. Um, and so it's not a massive subset of customers, but they happen to be some of the largest in the world that are asking us to be there. The other thing, too, is, as most of you know, we've been working on FedRAMP High and IL-5. Um, these take time. Um, we will have FedRAMP High this year. Um, we haven't forecast anything for that because we don't have the historical data to forecast that. Um, we do expect that we will have more than $150 million in interest income this year. That is factored into our, um, our cash flow. We expect to earn interest above 3% through 2029. I'm not an economist. I can just forecast based upon the data today where interest rates are for us, and we feel good about that. Um, you know, I also want to stress, too, that a lot of our interest income is not cash. Like you, you'll, you'll buy commercial paper at a discount. And when you get the amortization, that flows through an interest income, but it's not all cash to us during the quarter. So don't just take that interest income in the quarter and take it back it out of cash flow to figure out what the true cash flow from the business is. Um, we will give you that number. What is the cash and non-cash piece in our queues? Um, we forecast an effective tax rate on a non-GAAP basis of 26%, but our, our cash tax rate will be below 5% because we have so many NOLs in the U.S., but we do pay cash taxes in countries around the world where we have significant presence under a cost plus reimbursement. Dilution, this is one of the biggest topics that people always want to talk about dilution. You know, when we look at dilution, um, we really don't focus on SBC. I look at dilution and it's a reason being is dilution is the best indication of current grant behavior where SBC really reflects the trailing four years of grants coming through. Um, you know, in, in 2023, the vast majority of our grant amounts went to new hires and R&D employees. I'll just show you. So you got our R&D, most of our grants, and then our other new employees, you can see 14%, and then our refresh grants to our existing employees were 25% of that pool. Um, R&D employees did account for 61%. I do think in the future we will continue to grant more skewed towards R&D. Um, you know, salespeople tend to get more cash compensated on the sales side. You perform, you get paid. Um, but it's, it's a really important thing, though, that engineers all want R&D or all want equity, and we're competing with the largest technology companies in the world, those who are all granting that R&D, too. So dilution is not going to go to zero unless we do a massive buyback to offset that. But I do think dilution, I'm just going to skip through these things, will come down over time, and it is coming down this year, partly because we're hiring less people. As we slow our hiring down, the grant, the, the grant expense will decrease. Um, I will say we do use RSUs, um, and we heavily compensate on M&A transactions. We will continue to do that. Um, but we are benefiting from fewer grants and lower grant amounts. We, and as our stock price, if it goes up, we give less equity. As it goes down, we'll end up having to do more equity. And the reason being is when you grant equity to an employee, it's not about the number of shares, it's the value of those shares 
on that date. Um, in terms of um, where we're investing, you can see here R&D. Um, I talked about they're going to continue to grow, but I do expect in 2024, um, 50% of our grants are going to go to net new employees in R&D. Dilution target. We're reiterating our long-term target of 2%. You can see in 2023, we're at 3%. Um, we're forecasting it to be 2%. Um, we have introduced a buyback to help manage dilution. Um, be transparent, haven't bought anything this quarter. We did buy um, $193 million worth at an average cost of about $136 million or $136 in um, um, Q2. And with that, I'm going to invite Frank and Christian. But before you do that, we're going to bring chairs up here and um, we'll go into Q&A. <laughs> supposed to take other pillows? You want to? <laughs> Am I supposed to take this up? Brad, since he was keen to sit in the front row. He's brave. Awesome couple of days. Ton of inv innovation on display. Um, I've got one for you, Christian, and one for Mike. Christian, you put up a simple yet powerful slide showing in 2014 disrupting analytics, then disrupting collaboration, and now you're disrupting the development of, of AI ML apps. How does your prior disruptive innovations in separating storage from compute and data sharing uniquely position Snowflake for this next wave? And, and what are the milestones and metrics we should look at to appraise your, your progress in AI apps? And, and for Mike, your long-range guide, in the past when you've talked about it, you've explicitly said that you expect to be growing 30% in fiscal 29. Just want to clarify if that expectation has changed and if that at all impacts the, the margin update that we see as well. Thank you. Can I go first? Sure. Oh, you want me to go first? Oh, I'll go first. <laughs> um, I, I removed that because I don't need 30% growth to get to the 10 billion in, in, in 2029. So I don't expect it right now to be 30% in 2029. Be close to it. Um, some of the architectural uh, innovations from the early days of Snowflake, <clears throat> you mentioned separation of storage and compute, are foundational to everything else we're doing, to the three waves of innovation. Data sharing, which is the collaboration disruption, would not work as well and as magic as it is without that separation. Same thing happens for applications. Our, our, our vision is we want to have a common data substrate and all sorts of apps working in it that would not be possible without that same uh, abstraction. So for us, it's very important that we have actually a very clean architectural blueprint that enables all of these waves of, of disruption. In terms of um, metrics, you asked us how do we track it. Mike shared some of the numbers that we use on 
we, we have perfect telemetry on what customers are, are doing, and we will be able to report and share with you progress on workloads, data warehouse, data science, but also <coughs> specifically is it LLM or not. We have visibility into all of that. Whoa, 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 whoa. Catherine, you can just decide. <laughs> uh, Kirk Maternith Evercore, ISI. I'll uh, echo Brad's thanks for having us out here. Um, maybe for you, Frank, there's a lot of discussion, obviously, about AI, but it's interesting listening to you all that without data preparation, you know, the ability to take advantage of a lot of the things that are associated with LLMs and, and AI just won't be the same. You know, when do you think your customers sort of make that connection more fully, meaning, you know, if it, it seems like there's going to be a FOMO element of this where if one company falls behind another from an AI perspective, they're going to have to catch up. But if they haven't been doing the right things around data, that could be really difficult for them to catch up, say, a year from now or two years from now. Yeah. So you just talk about that a little bit in terms of are the customers making that connection right now in terms of data preparation, data cleanliness, and AI? And then just really quick for you, Christian, you know, long presentation today. I'm sure you're tired of talking. But, you know, we're getting a lot of questions about vector databases. And I was just kind of curious if you could just touch on that really quickly about how that fits into the architecture. Yeah. Thanks. I'll, I'll, go, I'll go first. So, so first of all, you know, you, you, I'll reference uh, Mahir from Fidelity again. You're on a five-year journey, you know, to basically clean up the mess from whatever, the, however many previous decades. It's not a quick turn, okay? So they're not going to wait for that. What, what they will do is, you know, they, they will take certain business segments, you know, with certain data sets, and they will enable those with large language models. And I'm already seeing that, okay? Um, now, you know, Hopefully, along the way, you know, they get some religion around having a data cloud because that's, that's the reason why you hear us talk so much about it because everything gets harder when you have, you know, a siloed environment. But it's not going to stop people from, from lighting up uh, specific segments, specific businesses, uh, specific data sets. You know, as, as we said earlier, you know, people want to go to their board meetings and show what they're doing and, you know, that's why I said augmented query and things like that. That's sort of my term for that uh, low-hanging fruit. Uh, you're going to see a lot of that stuff, and people are going to be high-fiving and like, yeah, we're doing that. We're part of the party. Great. Right. But, you know, we're, we're looking much harder at you know, the ability to ask very hard questions of the business, and we're already we, – we want to sort of look, you know, towards, you know, what that challenge uh, entails, and that's what our partnership with NVIDIA is about. I know Jensen is, is super interested in that because it's, it's, it's the final frontier. Right, where you know you get a co-pilot who's like way smarter than you'll ever be, you know, in terms of understanding your business. I mean, that's that's the. You know, and there's no end game in this. It goes on and on and on. But that's sort of a state that we're we're aiming for here. Yep. Vector databases. We we subscribe to the notion that it is not a different database. It's a specific representation of a vector or an embedding, and then you run some operations uh, along those uh, or on those vectors. If you look at how we've done everything around data science for Snowflake, is we've first done extensibility to enable all the use cases, and then we go on first party, enable or simplify the use cases. So we showed this morning the extensibility version, and I'm not ready to announce anything else, but we're looking at how do we simplify the use of vector databases. Thank you, Mark Murphy with JP Morgan. Um, so Frank, Microsoft uh, recently commented that it expects that its AI services will, will drive about one point of growth in Azure 
in, in this current June quarter. And I'm just wondering, um, given all the work that you're doing with NVIDIA, uh, with Microsoft, uh, Satya Nadella commented on this with the OpenAI uh, services and the linkages there, um, and the fact that, you know, most of the Global 2000 is going to have to prepare its data estate, right, for, for training these models. Um, can, can you come up with any kind of rough estimate? Uh, for instance, what percentage of all the compute uh, uh, that's happening today in Snowflake do you think is related or tied in with these generative AI models or large language models? Um, and and if, you, if there is no way to approximate that, is there a way to step back and say, given your favorable positioning um, in this arena and all the developments that you're launching here, can generative AI be, you know, sort of a tangible tailwind on the, on the growth of Snowflake, you know, going forward several years into the future? Well, so I think Christian might be able to comment on what, you know, what are we can see, what workloads are, are, are of that sort versus everything else, but I, I absolutely expect it to be a tailwind just, just by virtue um, of democratizing access. It will, it will be much easier for many more people to ask many more interesting questions, you know, of the data. So I, I think that alone, you know, this is what, what Sridhar talked about earlier. Um, this is this, this natural language interaction that really redefines our relationship with data. I think we're going to benefit from, you know, just positively. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, how we separate that out, I, I know I mean, the things are running inside containers, you know, we're going to be able to, you know, identify that. But why, why don't you yeah. So, so, so we, have, we have really good visibility into what type of activity the compute is being spent on. The, the number Mike just showed on, on percentage of customers doing AI, ML, we, we see which Python libraries are being used and we classify them as AI, ML. So, so there, there's going to be a, a, a direct number and then at some point we can give you an update on what Mike shared today. The hard thing to tease apart is people are going to run to try to cleanse the data and to, uh, what Frank was saying, this data strategy that is the input into AI, I think that's going to be harder to correlate. And we're already hearing from customers. Someone told me last week, I want to start tearing down silos because there's no having a conversation with your data if your data is in five different database systems. That Second part is hard to correlate, but, but the direct impact, yeah, we, we, we have visibility and we'll be able to share. Hello, Cash Rangan with Goldman Sachs here. Congratulations on an amazing summit. One, uh, I guess, for Frank and one for uh, Mike, maybe. Uh, Christian, you can chime in as well. Um, we've listened to a lot of software companies saying how they are uniquely positioned to take advantage of generative AI, and all those explanations are very compelling. Frank, what, in your view, uh, makes Snowflake very unique in this uh, era of generative AI? And uh, follow-up from Mike, um, you laid out your long-term projections, and it didn't seem like you were incorporating aggressive assumptions for Snowpark. There's a string of initiatives here, icebergs, streamlets, unit store, et cetera. Let's say you do hit a home run in one or two of those non-core adjacencies. What is your best possible outcome uh, upside outcome to the 10 billion. And there's a third question, sorry. If optimization ends, can you reaccelerate your top line? Thank you. So, Cash, the answer to your, to your question is, um, you know, we're sitting on exabytes of proprietary enterprise data, structured enterprise data. 
Um, so that's, that's number one. It has gravitational pull. People are going to want to, uh, you know, as Jensen said you know, last night, you just turn on the AI factory and then we have natural language interfaces and then we're going to be asking all kinds of interesting questions. But that's sort of level one uh, of, of, of the answer, you know, to your question is, is the amount of proprietary data that we're hosting and managing, you know, on behalf of our, uh, our, our customers. But the second thing is this proprietary enterprise data holds the key to levels of intelligence about institutions and businesses that, that are far more interesting than, you know, what I call planning your next trip to Yellowstone. Not that I have anything against that. It's like, holy cow, you know, that's the sort of, or summarizing the great Gatsby and all that stuff, you know. This is, a, this is about redefining the economics of industries, right? Think about what can happen in, in, in healthcare and in call centers and in telco. So we, we think that the, the potential, uh, you know, economic impact of these models, you know, by virtue of the fact that we're on structured enterprise, proprietary structured enterprise data, that can be extraordinary. So I, I do, th I, I don't want, are we unique? No, because we're not the only people that, that live in this world. Are we extraordinarily positioned for, for the opportunity? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah and I'll, I'll say in a, in a consumption model, just as quickly as a customer can slow down consumption, they can increase their yeah. consumption. So it is very possible for revenue to um, reaccelerate. Um, you've seen that historically with us. Um, there's nothing to say it could not happen in the future. Um, and in terms of what is the upside, um, your guess is as good as mine. I'm not going to um, speculate how big Streamlit, Unistore, Iceberg tables can be. As I said, we forecast our business based upon historical consumption. I don't have any data to support that yet, so I'm not going to forecast that. If we see some uptick in that next year, expect that the model will be updated and I would expect it will be on the upside if that is the case, if we see that. Yeah, one, one thing, I just this, this very quick follow-up, right? I mean, customers are already taken off you know, <coughs> uh, without us, right? Because, you know, you, I said earlier, like in Azure accounts, you know, Microsoft is hosting its own open, open AI instance and uh, people are just, you know, querying those services. So, and they don't even need us to, to do that level of implementation. So this is, this, this is already, you know, happening while we're sitting here talking. So I, I do expect there, there's going to be, you know, there's a lot of push, you know, for people to adopt levels of, of, of these kind of services. Hey, thanks. Michael Turner with Wells Fargo. A appreciate all the content and the time this, uh, the past couple of days. Um, I wanted to spend time on the industry cloud strategy. Um, you had the eight, eight clouds up on the go-to-market segmentation. That's been a clear point of focus on the product side over the past year. So I think the question is, do those help in terms of current positioning around some of the AI conversations that are coming up? I'd imagine customers are looking for industry-specific ways to solve their data problems, and so I'm wondering if already having those cloud industry-focused products is at all helping jumpstart some of those conversations. Thanks. So I'll comment, you know, first, look, you know, the industry clouds, they, they really shape the contours of the data estates, okay, because it has, you know, like in financial services, you know, the S&P and FactSet and all these different people that are part of it. And, and, you know, through, you know, Cybersyn and people like that, you know, we're really augmenting, enriching, even weaponizing data. So that all becomes, you know, you know, part of the contours that people then can, you know, enable that with, with <laughs> these large language, 
you know, model. So I, I think it, it will have an effect on that. I think it's. I, I think the industry data clouds are really important because the network effects, which are in, incredibly powerful, you know, um, and obviously we've seen that in financial services, uh, you know, very, uh, very pronounced. But I'm expecting this in supply chain management. It really means all the manufacturers, all the retailers, really that, that, that is a huge part of the, the backbone of the economy. We're going to see tons of network effect there just to get visibility and understanding of supply chain, which we historically you know, have not had. So um, you know, I, I think the, the way we're shaping the data estates in these industries and then the, the incremental opportunity of driving incremental intelligence from that, uh, it's going to be great. I mean, that, that is the strategy. I mean, it's, it's not a sort of a horizontal, abstract thing. I mean, industries, you know, are really, you know, they're coalescing around their unique issues. Every industry is a totally different conversation, you know. Hi, it's uh, Brent Phillips, Jeffries. Uh, Mike, I think you said in the last uh, earnings call that things were, were flat. You weren't seeing a big inflection. Are, when, when do you expect those customer <laughs> behaviors to change? Are you seeing any... Any signs of, of light out of the tunnel here in terms of optimization? Just to give us a sense of, of what you're seeing. Well, as I said, optimizations are always going to happen and they're going to continue. Um, I'm not seeing any big optimizations now, but a lot of them we only find out about if we're not involved on the PS side. We don't find out about them until they're, they're happening. Um, in terms of what we commented on the call was literally the month of April kind of starting about day 10 or whatever is pretty much flat week over week growth in revenue. But coming into um, May and into June, consumption is back where we'd expect it to be. So uh, we look at it on a daily basis, week over week growth. I, I will add too that in talking to the sales team, the sentiment from the sales team is a lot. And once again, this is more from a bookings perspective. This isn't how we forecast revenue. The sentiment with customers over the last 30 days seems to have improved a lot. Over here, Itai Kidron from Oppenheimer. Thanks again for <coughs> the last couple of days. Very interesting. Question to you, Christian. Um, from talking to customers over the last couple of days, the benefits that you bring to the table in data warehousing are absolutely clear from a cost and performance standpoint. Some of the concerns, however, that were raised um, with respect to what you're trying to do with analytics and machine learning is that the cost benefits and the performance benefits don't quite translate in the same way in those type of use cases. So maybe you could talk about um, the ROI for the customer in those type of implementations. Nobody doubts the technical capability of the platform of doing it all, but does something in the math change uh, in that perspective and performance? It's, it's a very interesting question. When we did Snowpark, the bigger benefit that we believed in was the ability to eliminate these trade-offs between doing data science and compromising potentially privacy or security. Um, I mentioned in the session this morning, organizations oftentimes are at odds. They, the data science team trying to do cool downloading libraries from the internet and then the team that is in charge of governing it. And the whole thesis of Python was, re, of Snowpark was remove that trade-off. And that continues to be the top line or the headline benefit. It just so happened that our processing engine is 
so much better than Spark, which is what most people use, that then we saw this massive not only performance benefits, but by implication of the business model, um, cost benefits. I don't think we would have ever started saying this is a, we're going to do a cheaper version. No, it's all about governance. And frankly, Spark was, it is not very good, and that's how those benefits. But those two still stand. Even for machine learning and, and training, we, sh we showed this morning something that was five times faster than Snowpark that was two times faster than Spark. And so economics, but probably most important is governance. The other thing I would add is operational simplification. I think that's, you know, people are not looking for more complexity. They're looking for less. And if you can run it in the same platform, I mean, you're eliminating a lot of steps, not just cost, you know, so. Yeah. Thank you. Tyler Radke from City, and glad that you're still here, Frank, and Mike, you're feeling better. Um, so a so, couple questions. The, the first question maybe for Mike. So you had an interesting slide just kind of talking about how some of the customer cohort expansions this year have been a bit slower than, than typical seasonality. But I think as you look towards your FY29 targets, you're expecting that there is still some bit of a headwind on that initial consumption, but then it, it sort of normalizes in, in year two to year four. I was just wondering if you could talk about what's, what's driving that confidence and should we expect a return to that normal type of consumption expansion starting next year? Um, and then second question, just related to the marketplace uh, capacity uh, announcement, just any more color you could provide on, on the potential impact for, for the financial model be it bookings or, or, or margins? Yeah, um, so actually I'll deal with that first. So when you allow customers a capacity drawdown um, on a contract, um, you can't include that amount in your RPO because remember, um, and so that will have an impact on RPO, um, even though we have a contract and it's a firm commitment, so we will limit the maximum amount that a customer can apply towards that marketplace drawdown and as an example if it was a million dollar customer and we said you can have a hundred thousand of that could be applied against buying through the marketplace app data or applications we'd only be able to record assuming no revenue was recognized nine hundred thousand in rpo the hundred thousand doesn't show up in rpo and when the customer if they consume say fifty thousand of that hundred thousand the only thing that hits our revenue is the revenue piece that we take because it's a pass-through to the customer. So say we made 4% on it, we'd only record 2,500 bucks in, um, 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 in, in revenue. We wouldn't get the 50,000 in revenue is the way the accounting works for those marketplace deals um, because we're actually not reselling, we're just being the intermediary and um, collecting the cash on behalf of the, uh, the, the partner. Um, and um, and now I'm going blank on what your first question was. Repeat it, please. <laughs> yeah, just around the normalization yes, of consumption yes. patterns. So, you know, one of the things that we would see historically that your two cohorts, their consumption just spiked. And what a lot of that was with customers just trying to move their data as quickly into Snowflake. And there was a lot of inefficient usage um, of that data. And what we're seeing now with customers a lot more disciplined, they have been hiring people that have lived through Snowflake migrations to be with them. So I don't see quite that same ramp in the early years. Yes, it's still ramping a lot, 
they don't expect that. But what gives me the confidence in the net revenue retention expansion, you saw the Global 2000, that stayed pretty consistent. I expect the Global 2000 to be a much, much bigger percentage of our overall revenue by 2029 than it is today. And those guys will continue to grow for years. Yeah, I, let, me, let me add just one thing to this because I, I, I sort of <coughs> see this happening in, you know, for example, large financial institutions. You know, some of you are representative of these institutions, so you, you probably know how this works, right? But they, they plan over three, four, five years. They have an extremely disciplined, regimented, you know, rollout. And it frustrates the hell out of our salespeople, by the way. They're like, holy shit, we're going to make money here, right? But they're like, no, we're on our plan, and they are methodically marching down the field, and nothing and nothing is going to distract them. But I will tell you one thing. It is going to materialize. It is just not a wang-bang quick you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pushing it into the end zone. That, you, you see less and less of that. With a large institution, that is not how they operate, you know. Thank you, uh, Brent Braceland, Piper Sandler. Um, I actually wanted to drill down into this push into apps and AI. Uh, Mike, for you, specifically on monetization, um, should we think about Snowpark as the primary vehicle to monetize apps and AI, or is it broader? And then for Christian, can you talk a little bit about and clarify the app ambitions? I think of Snowflake being an app development platform. Unclear if Snowflake might want to build their own apps as well. So just clarification there. Thanks. I think they're both questions, Christian. Okay. <clears throat> I'll take it in reverse order then. Um, will we build our own apps? We've had the conversation in many contexts. Right now, the horizontal opportunity is so large that we would much rather have <coughs> partners go and develop that for us. Maybe at some point there's a category where we want to go and do more ourselves, but um, right now it's partners primarily, and, and literally the three of us have this conversation uh, every so often. What was the first part? I'm sorry. <coughs> yeah. So, so, yeah, so, so Snowpark is the runtime of our app stack whether it's Python, Java, or containers, that truly is what drives the bulk of the compute. There are other parts that play a role in our app stack, Streamlit, which is how you build the UI, but Streamlit itself runs on Snowpark. So I would say it is fair to say that Snowpark is the core engine for the app platform. It is at the end of the day what we will monetize and I think you, you, you've said in different forums that if all of this plays out the way we, we think, you could see at some point the revenue from the app runtime, Snowpark, be larger or comparable or meaningful to what we see on the data side. Yeah, one, one thing I would add to that, and I, it was kind of interesting to listen to Mahir, the, the CTO from Fidelity this morning, because he, he said, look, there's data engineering and there's software engineering, right? And data engineering is Snowflake. Software engineering is Snowpark. There's function and there's data, and there, there are two hemispheres, right? Now, we, we have, in my opinion, beautifully integrated these spheres. It right? is beautiful. It is beautiful, and we like beautiful. It's, it's important that it's beautiful. We, we're, we're not hackers, okay? Um, but I, I think it's important for you to have a, an appreciation that we're addressing the function in addition to the data, which is a massive scope expansion for us as a company. But we think this is really important in the cloud 
Because, you know, when, when we were living, you know, on premise, you know, we'd access databases, you know, ODBC, DADBC, because you had a security perimeter around it. People weren't worried, right? But in the cloud, who's managing that? It has to be you, right? So, so you can no longer say, like, oh, it's not my problem. Well, <laughs> sooner or later, it will be your problem. So we, we took a highly secure, high-trust, uh, you know, posture towards that. So the, it's not just the function, it's the way that we deliver, allow that function to be delivered is, is, is what this is about. So I, I, my, my belief is that, you know, software engineering is a much bigger deal than data engineering. In the, in the, I mean, if we set off this renaissance in software development that I talked about this morning, because that's sort of how I think about it, because we have so lowered the bar in terms of investment, in terms of all the things that have to happen for you to build and sell a software application, you're gonna you're, you're gonna get this 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 orders of magnitude you know software explosion because you just now can you don't have to put any money up in front two men and a dog you can build something you know in four days you know put it in the marketplace sell it monetize all they gotta do is cast a check right that that that's really what we're trying to do we're trying to redefine the software engineering sphere from what it historically has been because we think the cloud enables and allows that. So I just want to give you a little bit more, you know, sort of background on how, we, how we're coming at this. This is, I don't want to say it's revolutionary, but it's definitely a really different take on, on software engineering from what it historically has been. Hey there, Patrick Colville from Scotiabank. Um, thank you so much for hosting us. Uh, I thought uh, the most interesting slide you put up was the product adoption by customers. 95% uh, of customers using Data Warehouse, 35% using Snowpark, 20% AIML, and 25% data sharing. I mean, do you think Snowpark, AIML, and data sharing are going to reach that like 90% penetration, or do you think, you know, the mid-market customers and I guess smaller enterprises won't adopt those products? And I guess my oh. second question, if possible, is we didn't hear too much about Unistore. Is there any update there in terms of when that might go GA? So on, on your question there, those customers, I broke it into customers consuming less than a million and customers over a million. Just because they're consuming less than a million doesn't mean they're not a big customer. No. And there are many of the, many of the global 2,000 that we've landed are not million-dollar customers yet because they're in the very, very early innings. I don't see any reason why that won't be closer to the million-dollar-plus and I still think even in those million dollar plus, there's a lot of upside with getting more adoption, especially on data sharing. I do yeah. think data sharing is going to be a norm that all of our yeah. customers. Yeah. I think data sharing is going to go to 100%. Snowpark is going to go to 2,000%. Okay. I've said this publicly over and over, right? If, if you read or write, read and or write to Snowflake, we're going to own that work. I'm, I'm, I guarantee it. We will not stop at anything because it's, it's cheaper, it's faster, it's safer, and it's simpler. There's no damn reason in the world why you wouldn't do that, right? Because a lot of things that people are doing are unnatural acts. It's incomprehensible what's going on. Yeah. But in fairness, you know, we didn't have all the primitives, you know, to support us either, but we do now, you know. Yeah, and, and, and the prior question answers part of your question, which is um, if Snowpark is the runtime for applications, customers are going to end up using Snowpark maybe directly or indirectly. Like, if you're a bank and you want to use... DTCC's new native app, you will be doing Snowpark, even though you may have not set out to do that. So your second question was on Unistore. I, I shared the, um, we will be in public preview 
give or take at the end of this year. And, feed, and feedback ultimately informs general availability. But we've front-loaded all the big architectural changes. And we expect to be no more than six months from public preview into GA. So plan for roughly uh, a year from now. Hello, I'm Andy with Hyper, Hyper Growth Blog. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, what is the, what price structure are you guys considering for uh, Snowpark Container Services? And uh, can you discuss the option for GPUs built through? Is it going to be built through NVIDIA, or uh, is Snowflake going to manage that and pass it through? Yeah, I'll take it, Christian. Um, we did actually a lot of research on what should be the margins for Snowpark container services. And we found two extreme perspectives. For enterprise customers that want to consolidate infrastructure, simplify data governance, those use cases are traditional margin structure. You're like, that's easy. You're simplifying my life so much. There's a lot of value. For application developers that will compare Snowpark container services to similar orchestration, container orchestration products from the cloud providers, they needed a much, much smaller margin structure. So we ended up going into preview with an in-between margin, and we will have to adjust and, and, and figure out things as they go, which is one of the reasons why, why Mike was saying new products may have different uh, margin structures. In terms of the GPUs, those will be managed through us that we will procure them with the hyperscaler and then it'll just go through the normal billing for us. The, the interesting thing, though, is with our buying pattern, at, at power at AWS, we get easier access than many people to GPUs, and they're really hard to get today. Yeah, because we, you know, that, that's actually important because, <coughs> you know, if you're, well, let's, let's say Databricks, right, they rely on their customer to be able to procure the GPUs. What if they don't have them? Well, we, we have some real, I mean, we're, we're the largest ISV that Amazon has. And we're obviously one of the largest that, that, that Microsoft has as well. So that changes the, the, the relationship. Hey, guys. Uh, Brad Gerstner with Altimeter. Um, great event. Thanks for, thanks for taking us so deep in all of this. Mike, I really, I, I want to drill down on the $10 billion. Um, you know, I, I think you said, we believe we can still get there. But when I listen to it, listen to, you know, the, the drill down, I think less than 500 million of that, so less than 5% is going to come from Snowpark and de minimis from the other uh, places in the forecast. So less than 500 million from that. We think that AI is going to be a general tailwind because every corporation has to you know, cleanse their data, get their data into the cloud. So generally we think that's a tailwind. Christian says Snowpark could be as big as the underlying, you know, kind of data warehouse itself. So we all have to leave here and try to build a forecast. And the hardest thing I, uh, you know, I struggle with is if we thought core data warehouse was $10 billion before, and if we think AI is an accelerant, and you've got all these concentric rings now coming together, around the core data warehouse, why, why still 10 billion? Um, and why do you think, you know, perhaps the exit run rate is not as high as you did before? 
And then if you'll allow me a second question, um, Frank, I thought the segment with Sacha was amazing. Um, and, and the piece you both focused on appropriately was, you know, frontline alignment, getting that Salesforce alignment. Um, he talked about it publicly, which was great. Can you give us any more detail on, you know, what is, what's your objective? What's success for you in terms of Salesforce alignment? Thank you. Yeah, I'll start with, um, I think it was three years ago. We said that we'd do $10 billion in revenue in 2029 and um, felt very good about that. And there was a lot of cushion in that. And the next year I said we'd do $10 billion and there was a lot more cushion in that. Um, this year we're saying $10 billion. There's still cushion in that. But once again, we forecast based upon the historical consumption patterns we have. I don't have any support for how much is Unistore, how much is going to be AI, and that's upside. I just don't have that, and I'm not going to guide to that. Once we start seeing that, we'll update that model every year. But I feel good about the $10 billion based upon what we have today. Just your, uh, your second question, you know, Brad. Um, we really wanted to get Microsoft to a similar place where AWS is in terms of field alignment, incentives, how people are getting paid, and so on, because we know that model works. And when I say that model works, look, you know, we compete, okay? We win the technical wins a lot, okay, most of the time. What, what happens to people that do not get paid at all, you know, um, um, in, in such losses, they're going to try and double and triple down anyway about <coughs> Sunday, and it, and it ends up in a really ugly mix, and that creates, you know, headwinds in the relationships and the distrust in the field builds, and, you know, partnering becomes almost impossible, right? So I just want to get to a, a state where, and I, I told, you know, Satya literally, you know, uh, I said, look, you know, it says when you lose, you know, you guys are, you know, throwing, you know, millions and millions of dollars of free services at it, right, to try and, and, and reopen the conversation. And if that doesn't work, you know, you're going to trot out data breaks as a first-party product. He says, you just don't stop, you know, when you lose. He says, that can't happen, okay, when we have to sign up for a much bigger relationship. And, and, and he agreed with that. He's like, yeah, we, we, we need to normalize that because we compete. You know, either we win or you win. And then after that, you know, we, 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 we partner. And by the way, that happens with, with Amazon. Amazon loses plenty of times. They don't lose their mind over that. They don't. And, and that's, what, what, that's where we need Microsoft to be. Don't lose your mind. We're still consuming Azure here. We're going to consume all the other Azure products. It's like, it's like this, is, this is not a bad thing. You know, Azure, Snowflake on Azure is a win for, for, for Microsoft. Now, you know, um, will we just get there day one? I mean, I, I just had a Microsoft guy take a selfie with me today. Shit, that has never happened before, you know. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, look, you know, little baby steps, I guess. But, you know, we codified, you know, these things in the agreement, right? And that's really, we, we can win, you know, technically against Microsoft. We do it all the bloody time. As long as we have a normal posture, you know, in these relationships, it's going to work. And that's, that's, that's really what, what we wanted to convey to you today. And I want you to hear Satya talk. You don't need to hear it from me. It means very little, but you hear it from him. Um, you know, he, he's aligned, you know, with us on, on that sentiment. And I was willing to, to step up to that. 
Hi, uh, Derek Wood at TD Cowan. Uh, Frank, you've uh, mentioned Databricks a couple times, so I thought I'd ask about them. Um, I mean, you guys started in the, the cloud data warehousing market with the relational database. Um, you're now, you know, going into unstructured data and AIML, and they've kind of started at the Apache Spark side of things and are trying to get into SQL. And so, obviously, you talk about this market is very big. It's going to support a lot of players, um, but you do have roadmaps that are starting to um, kind of converge a little bit. So just curious how you think about, you know, your philosophy of the market versus theirs and what your advantages uh, are going to be going forward. Yeah, you know, look, you're, you're correct. They're, they're, they're different worldviews, you, know, uh, you know, first of all, right? I mean, I, I've said, you know, before that, you know, Databricks is great for people who want to adjust their carburetor with a screwdriver, you know? Um, you know, the rest of us are driving, you know, EVs, or, they, or they at least they have fuel injection, okay? And it, it's just a, a, a different type of thing. You know, we're, you know, we view Databricks really as the descendants of, you know, Hadoop and that whole generation uh, of, of platforms and technology. We're the descendants of Apple and Tesla. You know, we're trying to abstract people from complexity, right? It's a very different choice. You know, I sometimes talk to, uh, you know, public sector organizations, and they're, <coughs> like, and they're like, I'm so glad, you know, at running Snowflake, we can just get SQL engineers. They said, we can get those all day long. They said, we couldn't lay a finger on a Python guy to save our lives. He says, they won't stay. We can't afford to pay them. It's, it's a very different, you know, approach. Now, will there always be, you know, Python guys that like data breaks in accounts? Yes, I think there will be. That, that is just, you know, part of the makeup of our industry. But, you know, Databricks has also lived much more on the function, the software engineering domain, rather than the data engineering domain. And I think that, you know, what, yeah, you're right. They're, they're trying to come to the database domain, and we're sure as hell are coming into the software engineering domain with a vengeance. I mean, Snowpark is, is, is aimed at that, and, uh, you know, we have the advantage that starting with data is a really, really good starting point. Okay? So I'm, uh, I'm feeling good on, on, on that that dynamic. You know. if, if, if I may add, I would say structurally many of the choices from Snowflake early on have been validated really strong. The model running on our VPC, on our hardware, that we can normalize the service across uh, cloud providers. Um, how, how do we extract metadata from, from data? All of those things, go look at where, where Databricks started and how they slowly coming and following our model. So. Competition is good, but we, we think that we have a better foundation and we continue leaning on, on that. Yeah, single product, right? I mean, how many engines do they have over there? I've lost count, you know. Um, it's hard to build a single product, but it's incredibly powerful and it benefits the customer greatly. So those are convictions that we, that we have. I mean, the product does have to be, you know, good rather than I'm just going to throw something out there with a small group of engineers and just check a box. Uh, that, that's not Snowflake style, and I, I love that about the company. You know, from the first, but I didn't bring that. That was here, you know, uh, when when I joined, and I I really admire that. You know. Hi, it's uh, Greg Moskowitz from Mizuho. Uh, Christian, you know, when we were sitting here a year ago, you had talked about iceberg tables and the belief that many customers would standardize on that over time. Curious to hear how the uptake has been versus your expectations over the past year, and more importantly, does the addition of unified iceberg tables, you know, with two modes, right, managed and unmanaged, do you think that accelerates the adoption curve? 
And then for Mike, uh, you know, circling back to your comment, I think it was in response to Brent's question uh, about, you know, customer sentiment seeming to have improved a lot over the past 30 days. Anything you're hearing from Chris and his teams, anecdotally speaking, that might uh, shed some more light on that? Thanks. I'll, I'll start with Iceberg. Yeah, the, the, the point is, is, is very accurate. We think that the unmanaged managed mode will accelerate adoption. What we learned in the last 12 months was if I already had all my data in a data lake and in parquet files, <coughs> and I want to go to Snowflake with Iceberg, we created, frankly, too steep of a step to go to a point where all operations need to be coordinated by Snowflake. And the announcement from today is we're introducing a step in between this unmanaged mode, which meets customers where they are, lets them leverage their existing files and parquet, and then if and when they choose to, they can go graduate to a managed mode where Snowflake takes more. So it was entirely driven out of accelerating adoption. We're, we're quite excited about it. And my uh, answer for Brent, and I'll reiterate, um, you know, daily consumption patterns we've been seeing in June have been very good. Um, I would say back to where more we'd expect it to be. Um, unlike in April and into May where we didn't see very much growth week over week. Um, and as I said, customer sentiment and talking to salespeople seem to be good from a bookings perspective and deals are shaping up. We've been closing deals. We closed a big deal with a financial institution. Um, we closed another one with a big healthcare tech company today. Um, so I feel good about bookings, but that's not revenue. <laughs> so, but sentiment is shaping up in terms of the sales call when yep. I sit in on that on the weekly call. I don't think he likes you very much. Uh. Hi, it, it's John DeFucci from Guggenheim. So Snowflake was the pioneer in data warehousing in the cloud, and you took advantage or, or um, not took advantage, you, you leveraged the architecture of the cloud, and you did it first and did it better. Um, but now, as, as you've, you've, rec you've acknowledged, there's, there's competition out there. Frank has spoken, I think Christian too, about data gravity, and we know that's real. And so you've expanded beyond data warehousing to data adjacencies, and now even to app development, which is frankly pretty cool, and, and it's actually what good companies do. They expand for their customers and make it better. But if you stay at the current rate of monetization for all these opportunities, and the overwhelming part of it is data warehousing, do you think Snowflake can continue its success as measured by growth, which is also reflective of customer satisfaction, we know that, um, in, the, in the medium to long term? And I guess as it relates to that $10 billion target out there. So I know this is a little bit like Brad's question over there, but, but it's really like if you, just, if you stay where you are doing what you're doing, but it's still data warehousing, is that opportunity big enough to, to, to allow you to hit that target? Well, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll start first, right? Um, data warehousing is really the, in, in, in most companies, is the foundation of data engineering. This is the only place where they have trusted, sanctioned, optimized data. So I, I wouldn't sneer at data warehousing like, oh, it's not big enough. It is foundational. <coughs> 
to the, the, to the world of institutions and, and, and enterprises. The problem historically has been, and I, I think I've said this a few times, you know, it's, it's been a business of you know, begging for a 2.30 a.m. time slot three months from now because on-premise it was extremely uh, capacity constrained because you would consume a cluster in no time, right? So the growth you've seen from Snowflake, which has been extraordinary, thank you very much, um, it's been created because of that enormous pent-up demand that has built up literally over decades. You know, I, I've been in the world of analytics, not nonstop, because as you know, I've been in other places. But I've, I've seen this in the 80s, this problem. I've seen it in the 90s. It's been excruciating. You know, we're now finally in a place you know, where data is starting to become a real thing rather than reporting yesterday's news. So you need to get some context on what this is really, you know, about, you know, before like, oh, it's data warehousing. That's yesterday's news. You know, we, threw, we, we, we look at data warehousing really as a starting point, you know, for customers, right? Because they need to be able to, re to report what happened yesterday and update their data. And, of course, you know, we're going to streaming and, you know, observability and all these kinds of things. These are all natural things that are going to happen because they can. You know, before, you know, we didn't have any prayer you know, of, of really getting beyond, you know, re reporting, you know, what, what happened the day before, the week before. You know, monthly closing the books was extremely hard. We couldn't even focus on, on the more elaborated, more sophisticated pieces. So I, I, I think cloud computing as a foundational, you know, platform has opened up everything, has opened up the opportunity for Snowflake. Snowflake wouldn't be here without, you know, cloud computing, you know, fabrics. But now, you know, I, I think it's uh, – uh, I. I as a question, I, I take exception to what's really going on here. You know. yeah, I, I was going to say exactly the same thing, which is, and you touched on all of it, that I don't even know traditional data warehousing exists anymore. Right, exactly. Frank and, and, and Jensen talked about you're going to have a natural language conversation with your data. You tell me if that's data warehousing or BI or a new thing, but it's the new normal. Yeah. Okay, and we have time for one more question. I'm being told because um, we unfortunately have a customer event. And then Jimmy and the IR team will stick around for questions. He, he's owed a question for sure. Yes. Thanks very much. I hope it's worthy of the last question. Brad Reback from Stiefel. Mike, I think you had a slide up there that showed 58% growth in your GSI business year over year on a self-reported basis. A couple of weeks ago, you announced a new head of alliances, Tyler Prince. So what's the opportunity there? Obviously, he comes with a tremendous background on the app side from Salesforce. So how should we think about that playing through? Thanks. Sure. So, you know, Taylor has, or Tyler has very good relationships with the large GSIs, whether it's Accenture, Deloitte, um, EY, and others. And um, we think the GSIs are going to be very important. Those GSI practices, um, we've, we're already seeing kind of an inflection within Accenture. I think in Q1 we booked over 300 million, and Accenture was our number one or number two in Q1. Once again, these are self-reported numbers, um, but there's no reason why our top GSIs can't have half a billion to billion-dollar annual practices, and that's what Taylor is really. Tyler. Or Tyler is. Um, we're bringing him on to do, but it's not just the GSIs. It's also resale partners as well too, as we move into Asia more and other and alliances he will own as well too in that group. I do think, I do think the GSI relationships, and 
Accenture is a good example. Um, I mean, I, I, I personally wrestle with these guys, okay, and especially Accenture, because they're, they're, they're growing like a weed. I mean, they're doing incredibly well, but they, they do it because they just, they just bump into it. They back into it because we are selling. We are spawning all these projects, and because of their high level of presence, they can, like, put me in coach, and, and the business just takes off. But after a while, you know, even, you know, the, the, the people at Accenture are like, Christ, are, are we organized here for Snowflake? Well, they weren't, right? Um, I mean, they didn't, they did, they, there was nobody in, in Accenture who owned Snowflake as a business. And, uh, you know, it's like pushing a rope, right? Now they have gotten to the point where they, they have taken a very, very senior person off another uh, line of business that this is, you know, this is Snowflake, this is Snowflake only. It's becoming a business group. I cannot tell you how important that is in your relationship in, in, with, with, with SIs to get to the point where they become a business group, where they have targets, they have provisioning, they're, they're, they have to report on it on a weekly, monthly basis. Everything changes uh, at that point. It's, it's very, very nonlinear. So you've you got to do hundreds and hundreds of millions, you know, with them, for them, uh, before they start, you know, paying any serious attention to you. And, and we are now reaching these thresholds with these SIs, and I think it's really important. Okay, and with that, thank you, everyone. I really appreciate you guys making the um, trip here today. And for those of you on the call, thank you for uh, joining us. And um, we will um, probably see you around later on tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.